In this episode of the Chillinoy Podcast, we do a high-level overview of the history of cannabis in Illinois. We tell you how we got to where we are today. Throughout the episode, we reference a document. If you'd like to see the document, which includes citations for basically everything we say, check out the podcast description. You can download this document absolutely free. I put a lot of work into it. It's almost 20 pages of information. And like I say, it tells you at least how we got to day one of adult use sales. We'll return to this subject in the future so that we can continue to document as much history as we can. I hope you find value in this episode of the Chillinoy podcast. I think it goes without saying, although we mentioned it, I think a few times in this show, uh, we're not journalists. Um, and so, you know, take everything that we say with a grain of salt, but we're, we're just normal people like you. And, uh, we're trying to put this thing together. We've wondered why are things the way that they are? And, um, I think we've, I think this is a good start. So I hope you enjoy this episode of the Chillin' With Podcast. Yeah, all of our meticulous documentation, it's its going to be out there so that the people can build on it. So, uh, Philip, happy Friday. Thank you for sitting back down with me today on the Chillin' yeah, podcast. Happy Friday. Yeah, how's it going today? Going good. Sweet. You ready to uh, break down the history of Illinois cannabis? Mm-hmm. So, there's been great reporting over the years. I just want to give a shout out to like people like Robert McCoppin. Um, uh, what's another person's name? Ali Marodi, I think is her name or something Allie like that. Ali Marodi. Yeah. Yeah. I think, she's, are, I think she, yeah, she would, she used to do a lot of reporting. I don't think she does anymore. I think Robert McCoppin mainly does for them now, but yeah, Tom Shuba, yep. the guys have grown in. Oh yeah. Yep. Really we won't good plug, we won't plug cranes. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. Yeah. So, uh, oh shit. The one thing I forgot is a lighter. That's crucial. We need a lighter. So, you know, last time we talked, I've got a lighter now so that we can actually smoke <laughs> some weed. Um, last time we talked, one of the things that like, I feel like we both got kicked off to do was like, let's, let's break this thing down for people. Let's, let's do it from start to finish. And more importantly, let's talk about how this was molded into the way that it was, because as you said, before we got on the show, like when you really start to look at this stuff, it's crazy how like all of this came together to say the least. Well, and I think when you like, when you exist in Illinois and you know, in our world of cannabis here in going into 2023, it's like easy to lose the forest for the trees, I guess I would say, you know, you get caught up in like, like the struggle that's going on now to diversify the industry. But it's like, why is there a need to diversify the industry at all? You know, why, yes. why haven't people been able to get into this since before? And why does it still seem like it's such a problem? And that all kind of all stems back to how this shit started <laughs> absolutely, and has, never, and has never really changed. Yeah. And one thing that we'll see throughout this story is, uh, the same names keep popping up. There's only a few names involved in this, you know, the people that break and shake and make this thing happen. Um, it's a small group of people relatively. So, um, 
I don't know about you, but before we get into it, from my perspective, like I remember when Illinois legalized medical cannabis. I remember it was on the front page of the Chicago Tribune. Yes, a physical newspaper. And um, I was just like, whoa, we did it. This is fucking crazy. And I just didn't kind of think anything of it until I saw my first or saw the first medical cannabis dispensary I had ever seen in Illinois. And I was like, oh, so yeah, that is a thing. But like to me, it just happened. I didn't realize like what ex- what actually transpired. I don't know about you, but like when it when it legalized, did do you even remember that? Do you remember the day it legalized? It's funny. I'm trying to think because there was like a five year period where I quit smoking weed, and I feel like that was during it. So I feel like my attention just wasn't really on it. I guess you know. Sure. And then like by the time. Yeah, what? Like it was probably like, like I started smoking weed again around like 2017. So that would have been like in the kind of run up to when we actually legalized, which is when I, you know, obviously, I think it was kind of a known thing that the medical market here was just super overregulated and impractical. You know, I didn't, I didn't even want to get a medical card until they took that license plate flag off the thing, you know? Yeah. It's just like. Yeah, I mean, I guess I knew it was happening, but it just was like in the background. Yeah. So we'll get into all those things, but for for folks that are listening right now and they wondered what the hell you just meant um, in the past, <laughs> in the past, when a when you got a medical cannabis card, any police officer in the state of Illinois could run your plate and see that you had a medical cannabis card. Yeah. Um, which is obviously a huge invasion of privacy. Yeah, I mean, it seems like a violation of HIPAA. <laughs> Yeah. I, yeah. It's wild. And I mean, just seems like they would be then just searching for a reason to search your car and get you in trouble for something. Yeah. And just a funny note on that. I always try to make this note. I actually asked a police officer to run my uh, plate back in the day when that was still a thing. Um, it wasn't supposed to be a thing, but from what I was aware, the data, they could still access the data. And actually, in fact, they can, the Illinois state police, from what I understand, can still access the data to this day, maybe not off of a run, of your license plate, but they can still look you up in the that database. Doesn't surprise me at all. Yeah. I mean, and they, they seem like they call a lot of shots. <laughs> right. So from the state of Illinois perspective, I actually asked the CROO about this and they said that it actually, this is how they explained it. At least it comes in handy um, when a patient is pulled over with a large quantity of cam- cannabis, but they don't have their medical card. Um, because then they can prove that they, you know, can have that large quantity, even though they should have their, you know, medical card on them. Um, it's almost like uh, it's almost like the law is stupid. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. That's that. And that's actually one of the things. Uh, yeah. Like we, we said, we're going to get into why is the why are we where we are today? Um, but another reason which this is kind of crazy, but this is what they said. Um, If local law enforcement suspect that somebody is growing, they may contact the Illinois State Police to ensure that that person can grow. Which is hilarious, because like, if it's legal for medical to grow at home, I mean, I guess it's not supposed to be in view, right? That was how correct. That's how they would that's how they would establish some kind of probable cause to 
yeah. run that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's crazy. Yeah. Just but seeing anyways. plants in your window probably shouldn't be probable cause for anything. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> if we're legal. I think I can see a plant in your in the background right now. So um, yeah, I'm not, not a pot plant. Yeah. Yeah. But that I, I'm just joking. I was going to say, but that gives me the right to come in and look around. Yeah, it's a plant. Oh, I thought <laughs> it was a pot plant. Exactly. Exactly. So one of the things we talked about in the last episode that uh, most people don't know, and I don't remember, I think you may have said you didn't know this, but from what I've been able to find online and that, you know, it gets tough. Um, I wonder why it's hard to Google things that were posted in 1978. I wonder. Um, it's as if it didn't exist yet. Uh, from what I've been able to find online, Illinois first uh, legalized medical cannabis in 1978. The state legislature passed the Cannabis Control Act of 1978, which recognized the current state of scientific and medical knowledge concerning the effects of cannabis make it necessary to acknowledge the physical and psychological and sociological damage, which is incumbent upon its use, right? That's how they lead. And the use of cannabis occupies the unusual position of being widely used and pervasive among the citizens of Illinois, despite its harmful effects and previous legislation enacted to control or forbid the use of cannabis has often unnecessarily and unrealistically drawn a large segment of our population within the criminal justice system without succeeding in deterring the expansion of cannabis use. So that was the Cannabis Control Act of 1978. They say the intent was in the interest of the health and welfare of the students, uh, the students, the citizens of Illinois. And so they established a reasonable penalty system, which uh, their definition of reasonable was way different than mine, um, which was (laughs) responsive to the current state of knowledge concerning cannabis and which directs the greatest efforts of law enforcement agencies toward the commercial traffickers and large scale purveyors of cannabis. So basically the general assembly crafted a law that gave wide latitude in the sentencing discretions to the courts and established penalties in a sharply rising progression based on the amount of substances containing cannabis involved in each case. That's a really long way of saying that um, they established cannabis penalties, uh, you know, that escalate with the amount that you use. Now, like I said, (laughs) exactly. That's still in effect today. Some of those (laughs) some of those policies, um, which is something that uh, a representative brought up that we're going to get to later in the show. Um, a really solid point. So keep that in the back of our mind. A lot of those penalties have still not gone away today. But like I said, like I led with, technically speaking, Illinois first legalized medical cannabis in 1978 as part of this Cannabis Control Act. But as the Chicago Reader points out, there were two catches. The first was that the Human Services, the Department of Human Services, was merely allowed to give the doctors authority, not required to. And the second was that it could only act within the written approval of the Department of State Police and neither department took action. So ultimately, nobody was ever certified for medical cannabis in Illinois uh, up until we had the original um, pilot program. Now, we're about to get to that, but I want to spark up some weed and say that we will be posting citations to all of the things that we're talking about. Um, definitely as much as we can. And if you 
look in the citations for this episode and you're missing something, reach out to us. Um, Chillinois.net slash contact is probably the best way. We can try to get you the story if you can try to tell us what the, you know, what we were referencing and we'll try to figure that out. So yeah, cheers, man. Um, this is, this is cool stuff. We're about to get into the beginning days of the actual medical cannabis program, which did see people certified and, uh, it wasn't the smoothest road. This is uh, something that I learned. I think both of us learned in our research. So. <laughs> What's that? Oh, nothing. Someone just walked in. Oh. <laughs> Didn't know I was in the guest room. Oh, gotcha. But yeah, so um, that was the Cannabis Control Act. You know, old news in Illinois. Nothing ever came of it. Uh, at the time, it seemed kind of progressive, but... Uh, <laughs> Those are the same penalties, though, that would be around today, right? Isn't I believe so. The, isn't that what the, like when you look up, it's the Cannabis Control Act is what the penalties for cannabis stem from still today. They just wrote exceptions to that. Yep, I believe so. Right. And and uh, I believe that um, the when cannabis was decriminalized, that it actually amended the Cannabis Control Act only so that penalty, you know, the penalties where it was 10 grams or less was mm -hmm. a citation of a certain amount. So, yeah. But yeah, the big point, and this is what I'm glad you brought that up again, that our listeners should keep in the back of our uh, mind is that most of these penalties are still alive and well today. Um, I love this analogy that Evan Bruno has made on the podcast in the past. Legalization is basically just a tightrope. We've built a tightrope and it's very much a tightrope because you have to keep your balance on it. And if you slip just a little bit, Again, the point is all of these old penalties, most of the old penalties, the bad ones, they're still in effect. Um, just to quickly jump to the point, if you're wondering what the hell we're talking about, so you don't have to wait for it. If you have a possession limit or if you possess more than 30 grams, all of the old penalties still apply uh, if you don't have a medical cannabis card. So, you know, more than four, more than 14 if you're an out of state person here. Yeah. And, yeah, and that gets a lot of people so. that gets a lot of people because in most states out out of staters can have an ounce. And so most people just think, oh, they go one place, they go another place, they have an ounce. You can't do that as an out of stater. At least don't get caught doing that. <laughs> well, I think uh, what was it? That guy, Evan Bruno, told a story about a guy who had gotten arrested for having like 15 grams or something. And he didn't even understand how that was possible. And it was just because he was from a different state. Yep. Yep. It's insane. So, um, so yeah. Um, with, with those shortcomings in mind over the years, Illinois attempted to expand the legalization of medical cannabis. Um, the compassionate use of medical cannabis, uh, the compassionate use of medical cannabis pilot program passed the Illinois state Senate on May 27th, 2009 with an election year on the horizon sponsor Lou Lang didn't see a lot of potential for the bill to pass um, kind of a curveball in Illinois politics uh, Pat Quinn ultimately took over the governorship from then impeached governor Rod Blagojevich in January of 2009 so 
huge curveball in Illinois politics. Um, I was able to find a speech where Lou Lang tried to make the case for medical cannabis in Illinois. Um, we'll have that in uh, the podcast description as a citation. Uh, but Senate Bill 1381, which he was trying to introduce, ultimately died on January 7th, 2011. Uh, put it To put it shortly, there were a lot of things going on in Illinois politics at that time. And medical cannabis kind of fell to the bottom of the list. There was a lot of talk about corruption and such. So anything, anything to add? Corruption <laughs> in this state? <laughs> yeah, anything to add during that? Because I feel like you were more, uh, you might have a better memory of those times than myself. <laughs> um, I mean, not really. Was it crazy though? I mean, was it just fucking crazy to have I mean, a governor really, go to jail? It was, well, I mean, that's like, pretty common in Illinois history. <laughs> yes. But I did I did yeah. live up not far from where Rod Blagojevich lived at the time and that was a pretty fun circus. Were there like helicopters was, flying over your house all the time? Well, I wasn't that close. He was just like maybe 5 minutes northwest of me, but like there would just be mobs of people outside his house because it was always like a spectacle and he kind of like, you know, he played it up like a Trump would almost. Interesting. And then his wife would always be trying to like drag him inside. That makes sense why he's buddies with Trump now. I, I yeah, that's. Or I guess surprising. he was buddies with Trump back then too, because he was on the Celebrity Apprentice or whatever that show was. I mean, they're both narcissists with crazy hair, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yep. So um, unless I'm missing something, I didn't see any movement on cannabis until Lou Lang filed House Bill One on uh, January 6th, 2013. House Bill 1, which created the Compassionate Use of Medical Cannabis Pilot Program, was passed by the Illinois House of Representatives on April 17th, 2013. The bill passed through the Senate on May 17th, 2013, and the bill was sent to the governor on June 5th, 2013. Governor Pat Quinn ultimately signed the Compassionate Use of Medical Cannabis Pilot Program Act into law. Um, what a mouthful of a law. Uh, he signed that into law on August 1st, 2013. And like I told you on uh, before we got on air, I remember that day. I remember seeing the newspaper clipping. The bill had an effective date of uh, January 1st, 2014. So here we go. This is uh, the start of the cannabis industry in Illinois. Here we go. This is where things start to get interesting. So the new state law effectively legalized medical cannabis in a four-year pilot program with what many called some of the strictest standards in the nation. The law gave the state until the end of April to write regulations. The state posted the rules early to allow time for public comment. Hey, look at the Illinois. Hey, look at the state of Illinois doing something early. That's pretty cool. The proposed regulations released detail who can apply for a medical cannabis card and when they could apply. They also detailed that fingerprinting was going to be required and they showed what the cost would be. Again, all for the purpose of allowing public comment. I'm so surprised that public comment didn't take away any of those things or at least wasn't strong enough to. The regulations detailed how the state might add new medical conditions to the current list which included at the time about three dozen specific medical conditions. 
So I actually didn't put this in the paper, but the way that actually I think it might be in the paper later, but the way that they did that was they established a medical cannabis advisory board, um, which was comprised of patients and medical professionals that could advise, um, I believe, the somebody in the Illinois Department of Health um, who could then certify new um, conditions. So um at the time, Bob Morgan said that officials, uh, Representative Bob Morgan, who's a name that, like I said, there's a there's only a few names in this story, and Bob Morgan's name is going to come up a lot. Um, Bob Morgan said that officials would allow patients to apply in two waves based on the first initial of their last names um, to manage the expected surge. The first applications were on paper. Pretty crazy. They acknowledged that an electronic process could be set up in the future, and and one was. We'll get to that. Uh, the proposal also included requirements for opening a medical cannabis cultivation center or dispensary. So for dispensaries, state officials proposed a $5,000 non-refundable fee, proof of $400,000 in assets, a $30,000 permit fee, and a yearly permit renewal fee of $25,000. I'm saying all these numbers because you're starting to see the, the picture that's being painted. If you wanted to participate, you had to have a lot of money. I For think those were, those were like liquid assets too. So you had to pretty much have like $400,000 in cash. Yeah. Not only that, uh, you're absolutely right. Um, I think that these numbers that I'm reading right now were the initial proposal. So they, I just said proof of $400,000 and like you say, liquid assets, basically money you can just throw around. I believe they ended up upping that to $500,000. So not that it's a huge difference if you already have $400,000, but that's a big difference to somebody like you and I. Um, so uh, for cultivation centers, the Department of Agriculture proposed a twenty-five thousand non-refundable application fee, twenty-five thousand dollars. Two hundred fifty thousand dollars were required in liquid assets. Payments of two hundred thousand dollars upon approval of the permit and a renewal fee of a hundred thousand dollars. Whoa, that's a lot of money. Well I mean, it's not even that different. Like when you read, I don't know the exact numbers, but like when you read what license holders have to pay now, it's a lot still. Mm -hmm. Like it the really money is. just, the, the state just, <laughs> like it just views cannabis as a way to just milk people for money <laughs> at all levels. In fact, yeah, that's actually, it's funny. When we get to licensing, that was one of the original ideas they were thinking about just making it an auction. Let's see how... Let's just see how oh, much yeah. money we can get out of people. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, but we'll get to that. At the time, the law called for 22 cultivation centers and 60 dispensaries. Now, ultimately, IDFPR revised these rules in a new proposal that was released on April 14th. We have a link to that proposal. Um, among other things, the proposal acknowledged that while the act calls for one cultivation center in each of the 22 Illinois state police districts statewide, District 15 is the Illinois tollway system, which I believe is something that Trevian told me in the podcast. That I was wasn't the first following. time I had ever heard that, too. I had never heard of a, it. Before. It's kind of a genius way to try to lobby for a new license. It is. It really is. And it's just crazy that one of the police districts is literally just the tollway system. I didn't understand that until I like looked at it on the map and I'm like, oh, it's literally just a highway. 
You okay. Just so to grow, you just propose to grow it on the shoulder. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Get, get in the left lane. We're growing weed. Um, therefore, the proposed rules reflect that only 21 cultivation centers would be issued. Um, the proposal also removed language regarding FOID cards and medical cannabis identification cards because there were uh, several concerns, um, and specifically one levied by a member of the Medical Cannabis Advisory Board, uh, Jim Champion, Jim and Sandy Champion. Uh, if you look at any coverage for the original medical cannabis bill, you'll see Jim, you'll see Sandy. Uh, I used to trade messages with Sandy back in the day when I still um, was on, I can't even remember what social media platform it is now, but, um, anyways, if you look at old footage, you will see them and they were, you know, kind of instrumental in lobbying, um, for it. I believe in one of the speeches, even that, uh, governor Pritzker congratulates Jim. So if you ever look, look at footage, you'll see them. Um, the rules were ultimately approved by the Illinois or by an Illinois legislative committee on July 15th, 2014. Once again, uh, wait a minute. Is that before? Yeah. Yeah. I think that's actually a little bit after they were supposed to do it, but maybe they were just supposed to send it off to the committee. Um, by then, I don't know. I'm high at this point. Um, <laughs> not a, not a hugely important detail. We're about to get some of, uh, we're about to get to some of the really spicy stuff here. So like some of the other nascent cannabis markets at the time, such as Massachusetts, Illinois used a point system for licensing. Um, this is, again, our first licensing. We're talking about um, the medical cannabis program, the original medical cannabis program. The plan was for officials to score everything from business plans and financial disclosures to the applicant's security strategy. Those with the most overall points in each designated region of the state will be first in line to receive licenses, assuming they meet all the basic requirements as well. According to a report by MJ Biz Daily, the scoring system is based on a comprehensive regulatory framework that requires licensed businesses to meet a host of ongoing requirements. They say it's all part of the state's plan to create one of the most one of the strictest medical cannabis programs in the nation. Applications for licenses were due to the state of Illinois by September 22nd, 2014. Here we go. I never, I never really understood why. And at the time, I remember thinking this, at least why it was so strict. Like Colorado had legalized rec like the year, like right around the same time, essentially, you know, medical cannabis, like wasn't like nationally a new concept yeah i don't like, know why I mean, it was so strict i have to think it was just because who was because of who was influencing the process <laughs> yeah know? yeah i mean really I would, I would think so and and you know like there wouldn't have really been established i mean i guess cannabis businesses could have been lobbying coming in from other states you know yeah, but well, but you're thinking ahead and that's that's what I was about to say is like you're thinking ahead. So you're looking at how California went down, which they didn't even do licenses. They just said everybody can grow it. You know, in 1996, they just basically said everything and everybody can grow it. And then slowly but surely things like dispensaries came along, whether it was like, you know, gifting centers or whatever else. But they finally got to a place where they're like, 
there's licensed dispensaries, but I think the the theme and and everything out west, including you know Colorado, is they. I feel like some of these companies that that drafted this system to be the strictest you know program in the nation realized let's start it off as this like conservative effort to legalize medical cannabis and then we step into adult use and claim you know a major stakehold of that, that industry kind of what I, that's kind of what i thought too was like you would try to make it as unappealing to most people who actually use cannabis so you aren't really drawing in the potential customers so you have such a small like for one, if you have deep pockets, you can kill anyone else in there who doesn't have money to hang on. And then also yep. like you have time to learn what you're doing, you know, which yeah. some of these companies here still, you know, pretty clearly don't know what they're doing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. See, like clearly, like you say. Yeah. So, um, so sometime in mid September, like I said, those, those applications were due in September uh, September 22nd, 2014, sometime in mid September, it was reported that several companies had hired lobbyists to help them navigate the state bureaucracy among them. Here we go. Were governor Pat Quinn's former chief of staff, Jack Lavin and former Illinois state police director, Terry Gaynor, Lee enterprises, Springfield, Bureau reported that the 2013 law that legalized medical cannabis would keep taxpayers from viewing information about the companies seeking licenses. Representative Lou Lang reportedly defended the secrecy that was mandated by law. Here we go. Lang claimed that the confidentiality clauses were designed so state officials who review applications will not be swayed by political connections. And he said, that keeping the information under wraps will stop companies from obtaining information about competitors that could give them an advantage. The idea wait, was wait. to keep. Wait. So um, remember that document with the, where they clearly like removed a company or two. Yes. They would have had to have known that. Well, I guess, guess maybe what you don't guess what one of the companies were is Jack La Lavin's company. Well, right. I was going to say, or he was like, he was, he was lobbying for them. He wasn't like an owner, right. Or like he wouldn't have been part of the application. I believe you're correct. I believe he was lobbying. Okay. For them. Cause I was like, how would they have known if it's supposed to be a blind process? How would they have known that he's affiliated with them? Yeah. Yeah. That Jack Lavin's going to come back maybe up. That's why. Yeah. Jack Lavin's going to come back up actually. Yes, uh, the Chicago Tribune reported on this. We're actually about to get back to that. And but just really quick to answer your question, the report details that ex Quinn aide Jack Lavin was a lobbyist for Health Central LLC in Effingham, Illinois. Um, so yeah, we'll get we'll get back to that. But there's your yeah, yeah. The, the, uh, he is no, a sorry, lobbyist. I just had a random thought. <laughs> no, no, no worries. I'm I love it because I, and I was able to easily answer it. So <laughs> I love it. Um, so yeah, uh, we were just, oh yeah, I want to read this quote by Lang. It's, it's, it's funny. The idea was to keep this not secret in the sense of lack of transparency, but secret to keep the process pure. That's pretty good. It's pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> 
It's important to note that 2014 was an election year. Uh, the GOP's gubernatorial candidate at the time, Bruce Rauner, stated that if he were governor, he would have vetoed Illinois medical cannabis law. But now that it's law, he called for the state to scrap the way it's giving out licenses to grow and sell cannabis. Uh-oh, there's a new sheriff in town. The governor said that licenses, or sorry, uh, at that time, uh, it would have been a gubernatorial candidate, um, Rauner, said that the licenses should go to the highest bidder in an auction. Then we can actually make money from the process. Why not? Rauner asked. Our taxpayers in Illinois deserve a break. At the time, advocates reportedly criticized Rauner's auction suggestion, saying it would benefit the rich, seriously hurt ill patients, and potentially cut out the best qualified license applicants. Rauner said that he feared the business of medical cannabis in Illinois was secretive and ripe for corruption. I like this quote from uh, Rauner. Just, just the right amount of cheesy. Thanks to Pat Quinn's secret insider process, there are a lot of questions left unanswered. But there is something we know for sure. Something stinks, and it's not the marijuana. <laughs> so, Someone definitely wrote that for him. Yeah. Yeah. And he was like, Ooh, that's good. That's good. Give me that. Put it on the teleprompter. So Rauner claimed that former Quinn chief of staff, Jack Lavin was an example of a danger of political inside dealing while on the governor's staff, Lavin worked to pass medical cannabis. One month after it was signed into law, Lavin left the governor's office in spring of 2014. It was reported that Lavin signed on with a client that was seeking a medical cannabis license. Uh, we're about to talk about that company. The governor's office took exception with Rauner's comments, calling the process competitive and transparent. Bruce Rauner was elected as governor on November 4th, 2014. Pat Quinn conceded defeat the next day. The Chicago Tribune seemed to confirm some of the allegations that Rauner made in a report made on December 18th, 2014, leading up to the transition uh, to the Rauner uh, governorship. I don't know if that's how you say that. Um, the report details that ex-Quinn aide Jack Lavin was a lobbyist, like we were talking about a little bit ago, for Health Central LLC in Effingham, Illinois. According to the report by the Chicago Tribune, Lavin's career change highlights broader legal and ethical issues that arise when a high-ranking government official leaves, obvious, leaves office and becomes a lobbyist. Under laws that limit the practice in Illinois, Lavin is allowed to lobby for a medical marijuana business because he was not involved in regulating the industry while working for Quinn. But the governor's office said it supports further tightening of the law to ban former chiefs of staff from doing any lobbying for a year after office, after leaving office. Keep it in the back of your mind, folks. We're going to talk about, uh, yeah, the whole idea of you know, working in the office or crafting legislation, making your own jobs. That well, it's like the, the revolving door of lawmakers, regulators, lobbyists, and people who work for these companies. Bingo. Yeah. Yep. They just get like recycled. <laughs> <laughs> moved around, but paid good. Good while they're moved around, right? Well, I'm um, sure oftentimes they do it for a raise. Yeah, exactly. So, um, the manager of one corporate applicant, Horta Medicare, 
Horta Medcare Dispensaries, Illinois LLC, is listed in state records as John Sterling, who is stepson of former Illinois Senate President Emil Jones. One corporate applicant for a medical cannabis license apparently employed the services of another company that advertises its ability to keep owners hidden. Oh, I love this. <laughs> yeah. More, more from the article. Uh, Deer Path Development LLC of Summit, which, rec- which records show has proposed cultivation warehouses in Stevenson County and downstate Florida, was organized by Capital Administrations, which in turn was organized by Wyoming Corporate Services. Wyoming Corporate Services advertises itself on its website as offering shell, shell companies, which keep the shareholders and managers a secret, or which keep secret the shareholders and managers. An investigation by Reuters in 2011 found that Wyoming Corporate Services held company helped companies hide assets by creating entities on paper that were organized years earlier, but could be used later by a new venture. Jim Kemper of Deer Path Development said he was not involved in registering the business, but believed the company merely used Wyoming Corporate Services as a convenience to to file paperwork. There's definitely more to this story. Check out our sources um, on that. Um, so yeah, crazy stuff. You have any thoughts about that Deer Path um, development LLC before we move uh, on to the actual awarding of licenses? I mean, I wonder who was applying for that license. Because <laughs> clearly they didn't want people knowing. Yeah, and I, it's just, I was about to say that it's going to come out, but Frankly, no, it won't. It'll be the company. And as we're going to talk about. Well, they didn't um, get one, right? Well, I don't think they did. But but I was uh, going to say that like one of the comments, and I think it's going to be somebody will make it soon or maybe maybe I didn't include it. But somebody had said, uh, oh, yeah, Lou Lang, he was defending the secrecy in the process. Um, and one of the things he said was like, besides the fact, you know, like all the things I mentioned earlier. I think it was that same interview. He said, besides the fact of all that, you know, all those protections, we're trying to keep it secretive and pure. Um, you're going to find out anyways. They're going to open up a store and you're going to see their brand name. But the, here's the thing. It, and the, like uh, you've pointed it out so many times to me and we'll point it out later. Um, the Illinois law was drafted the way it was to keep ownership secret. So like technically, you know, yeah, there could be a company that we don't, we couldn't trace back the owner to. Well, the only, like, I think about that every time I see someone say they own, uh, even with the new licensees that are out talking and, you know, opening things, they say they're owned by so-and-so, but there's no way to independently verify that. The only information you have is what they give you or what you can find in public records. You know, like they might operate in another state where you could find that information. Um, Yeah, but it's not, I mean, it's kind of like we're operating on the honor system and like what you could fish and find. I mean, that just seems insane For for a state like Illinois to have things set up that way is like asking for, yeah, it's like someone who deserves no trust asking for all the trust in the world. 
<laughs> yeah. And it's an issue. It's an issue that's going to come up uh, again. And but to your point, most other states don't do this. And in fact, like you said, some people have had luck by looking to other states because things are more transparent. So, for example, um, we'll talk about this later, but six hundred thousand dollars from GTI alone in Ohio. Now, reporters were able to easily find that information. Um but, you know, you know, because uh, it's just a little difficult. And we actually will explain that to our listeners how because we're going to go through some of the the money that that was found by the Chicago Tribune and some of their investigations. But we're going to share some of the numbers we found, which is the exact same way that the Chicago Tribune found them roughly. Um, maybe they're, they have they're other. Probably, they're probably a little more comprehensive and better at it, but. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I was gonna say they probably have a little tr- tricks up their sleeves, but we're they're, gonna. They're sh- getting paid. They're getting paid to do it. Yeah, we did this. We did this for free, and so uh, you know, and we're trying to share this information, folks. Uh, the the big point, not only to like put all this out there in a bundle, want to share this information so that you can fill in the gaps if you remember some of this stuff. You know, because frankly, I'm sure in this story that we're telling right now, I'm missing some things. Um, it's really hard to go back and Google things from, I mean, we started in fucking 1978, but now we're in 2014. It's hard to find the stories in a linear fashion. And so I did the best I can to, to put all these stories. Like I say, everything that I'm talking about, there's going to be citations for, um, and so you can dig deeper and, and there's some things where I just skim the, skim the surface, um, either purposefully or like I say, not, you know, just because I miss something. So hopefully people can build on this. Um, so yeah, um, definitely some interesting things going in, uh, to the awarding of the licenses, you know, um, political accusations become kind of verified by the Chicago Tribune. Doesn't look good. Um, Things don't generally look good, as you say, in Illinois, like politics. It's it's kind of the name of the game. Gambling, uh, you know, is an example of former big time corruption similar to this, you know, when it comes down to like awarding licenses. So it's like here we are in Illinois again. Doing well, the same like, thing. I, like I was telling you the other day, because you didn't know about it. We we have already had a scandal called the licenses for bribe scandal. Yes. So <laughs> it was like commercial driver's licenses like truck driver's licenses but we have already had a scandal called licenses for bribes so this would be nothing new <laughs> yeah and give give people before we get into the award just give people the long short of that like what, well, what it's happened what, it's what our one governor went to jail for he tried to squash an investigation there was like a family on a highway that got killed they were hit by like a trucker and it was found he had like paid a bribe to get his license and then it was found that it was like common practice. I don't know who exactly was doing it, but they were selling licenses to unqualified truck drivers. But I just gotcha. think it's funny when you think about the potential for there having been corruption in the awarding of licenses in Illinois. It's like, well, this would have to be licenses for bribes part two. Yeah. <laughs> and my thing is, like, if you're if you want to squash all concerns and doubts about corruption, transparency is your answer like embrace transparency like but well, this nothing, is the thing nothing that they do has been transparent not not when it's mattered really at right least. yeah right absolutely absolutely well um 
So as the year winded down, the Quinn administration was running out of time to announce who would receive the lucrative licenses to run medical cannabis businesses in Illinois. Bruce Rauner, like we said earlier, had been elected governor. The administration had originally had originally promised the decision before the end of 2014. On January 9th, 2015, the Associated Press reported the governor that Governor Quinn could leave the decision to Rauner. Quinn said his administration is simply trying to move with caution. As we've mentioned a few times now, uh, political ties for some of the applicants have come under scrutiny. Further complicating the matter, <laughs> this is crazy. Illinois had collected more than $5 million in non-refundable fees from the applicants. On Pat Quinn's last day in office, the Associated Press reported that Governor Pat Quinn had decided not to award licenses for the medical cannabis industry before it, uh, for the medical cannabis industry before his term in office ended. That meant that the issue would be decided by Republican Governor-elect Bruce Rauner. Quinn's spokesman Grant Klinsman reportedly said that Quinn decided that the decision shouldn't be rushed out at the last minute. Um, at the time, people were afraid that the handoff to Rauner could lead to further delays or even worse, sabotage. Um, to his credit, at his first press conference after becoming governor, Rauner reportedly reiterated his suspicion of the licensing process for growers and dispensers, but he also said that he was committed to seeing the law put into action. That's the, that's what I meant to his credit. Um on January 26th, 2015, it was reported that uh, by the Associated Press that former Governor Pat Quinn's aides had prepared lists of businesses that were to receive medical cannabis licenses, but ultimately did not act on them. According to a report by the Associated Press on the eve of Republican Governor Bruce Rauner's inauguration, just hours before Quinn left the governor's office, the administration was making changes to the lists and even drafted news releases that were ultimately never sent. This is all according to documents that were obtained by the Associated Press through a Freedom of Information request. Um, we'll, we'll show those documents here in a moment. Um, the documents obtained by the AP and other uh, other news organizations in response, they indicate that officials from the administration of former Governor Pat Quinn uh, sorry, I'm all over the place. They disqualified an application, an application for a medical marijuana dispensary in Springfield that would have been operated by investors connected with Quinn chief of staff, Jack Lavin. So, um, you know, they were, they were really trying to be aware of the optics of this entire thing. And, um, emails that were obtained as part of the FOIA request show that Bob Morgan, who many at the time referred to as the medical marijuana program coordinator was pushing the Quinn administration to act to award business licenses in the two weeks before Quinn had left writing in an email to Quinn's spokesman, Grant Klinsman. I know we can't do it at this point, but it would be great if we can say we'll have it done by next week. Just saying. The Rauner administration reportedly made it a priority to launch a review of the process almost immediately. And on February 2nd, 2015, uh, a little bit over a month or maybe less than a month after he had taken office, Governor Rauner per, uh, granted permits for dozens of Illinois cannabis companies to grow and sell medical cannabis in Illinois. 
The surprise, the surprise move reportedly came just one week after Rauner said that no licenses would be issued until a legal review of the process was completed. The Rauner administration did not detail how the issue was resolved so quickly, only saying that it conducted an internal review of Quinn's work and also consulted with Attorney General Lisa Madigan's office and found numerous problem areas that could open the state to legal action. So among those are what Rauner General Counsel uh, Jason Barclay called arbitrary scoring provisions under Quinn that are all but eliminated or sorry, that all but eliminated some applicants and applicants that were disqualified without clear reasoning or chance for companies to respond to concerns. All told, it it sounds exactly like the process for scoring the rec licenses. Exactly. Which is funny. (laughs) Doesn't it sound familiar? (laughs) Like they literally didn't learn anything from doing it the first time and fucking it up. (laughs) (laughs) Straight the fuck up. All told, Rauner's actions clear the way for 18 cultivation centers to begin growing medicinal pot, and another three applicants were undergoing further review. The state will send letters to the selected cultivation centers informing owners that they were selected, um, and they have to pay all their fees and such. This is interesting. One company to be granted a permit is IESO LLC, which wants to grow medical marijuana in southern Illinois. The firm lists a manager, Tom Jennings, who is a former director of the Illinois Department of Agriculture. Nice. So uh, 53 companies were authorized to operate dispensaries that will sell cannabis once it's grown and harvested, but five companies were under additional review. That includes Health Central LLC, uh, which we've talked about a few times uh, because of the ties with uh, former Quinn chief of staff, Jack Lavin. Um, also getting a closer look is custom strains, LLC. Uh, the company is run by Perry Mandera, who also runs a trucking firm and VIPs, a gentleman's club on the North side of Chicago. I think, um, I thought it was interesting to note that the article reported that GTI had a security team that included former Chicago police superintendent Terry Hiller and former state police director Terry Gaynor. GTI also reportedly had an employee named Mike McLean, who was a former state representative and close ally of then House Speaker Michael Madigan. If you'd like to see the complete list of winners, got a citation for that in my podcast or in the podcast description, um, you can see the document that was released by the Rauner administration. Cresco's uh, application reportedly scored the highest in the state's selection process, not only in the three districts where Cresco competed, but compared to scores across the state. Cresco was ultimately awarded three cultivation licenses more than any other company at the time. Rob Sampson, Charlie Baxel, and Joe Cabasciano, I don't know if I said that right, credited their edge (laughs) to consulting with a reputable Denver cannabis company, wooing local support and winning bonus points by promising to contribute 10% of net profits to charities. I should pause and say that if I butcher people's names, I apologize. Um, But yeah, so they, they scored, they got a huge score. So under the Compassionate Use of Medical Cannabis Pilot Program Act, the state of Illinois required medical dispensing 
organizations uh, to acquire medical cannabis from a registered cultivation center. On August 25th, 2015, IDFPR announced the registration of the very first medical cannabis dispensary located in Marion. Um, like I mentioned earlier, the Compassionate Use of Medical Cannabis Act created a medical cannabis advisory board to evaluate petitions to add new ailments to the program's list of debilitating conditions. Um, on September 10th, 2015, the Illinois Department of Public Health Director Nareev Shah announced that new medical conditions and diseases that were suggested by the board will not be added. And this was a theme for Shaw, uh, Bruce Rauner's, uh, I think, appointed health director at the time. Shaw had ultimate authority as the board was only given the ability to have to advise. In addition to denying MCAB's uh, recommendation on September 10th, 2014, it was reported that Governor Rauner decided to veto SB 33, which would have added 11 new ailments, including PTSD. Rauner wrote to lawmakers, the pilot program is moving forward, but remains in its early stages. Cultivation centers are just beginning to grow their crops, and the first dispensary was licensed at the end of August. No patients have yet been served, and consequently, the state has not had the opportunity to evaluate the benefits and costs of the pilot program or determine areas for improvement or even whether to extend the program beyond its pilot period. A month before that, Rauner reportedly used his amendatory veto powers to change legislation that would have extended the pilot program by several years. Instead, he cut the time frame to an extra four months. At the time of this reporting, the program is set to expire in January of 2018. Advocates reportedly were in the process of negotiations with Rauner on the possibility of coming to an agreement on lengthening the program. So uh, it was reported on November 6th, 2015, to fast forward a bit, that medical cannabis would be available for sale at eight dispensaries on November 9th, 2015. At the time of that reporting, about 3,300 residents had been certified as qualifying patients. The first sale of medical cannabis ended up being uh, reportedly at six dispensaries. I don't know what happened to the eight. I guess two of them weren't able to open up. Uh, but that was on November 9th, 2015. To skip forward to 2016, um, Bruce Rauner signed SB 10 into law, which extended the program until the summer of 2022. And notably, the law also gave those with PTSD and terminal illnesses the ability to qualify for the program. Um, on June 16th, 2016, this is a big moment in Illinois cannabis history, Senate Bill 2228 was sent to the governor for approval. Bruce Rauner ultimately signed that bill into law on July 29th, 2016, and that measure effectively decriminalized cannabis. Under the new law, those caught with up to 10 grams would face fines of $100 to $200. Individual municipalities could add fines or implement other penalties, such as requiring offenders to attend drug treatment, which I actually didn't know the time when it when it passed citations were reportedly set to be automatically expunged twice a year on january 1st and july 1st the law also loosened the state's zero tolerance policy for driving under the influence 
This still holds to this day. Under the new law, drivers won't be charged with DUI unless they have five nanograms or more of THC in their blood or 10 nanograms or more of THC in their saliva. Folks never give a saliva test. I do not believe that they, the science is behind that. So refuse it. I believe you have to give a blood test if they ask for one. The science isn't really behind either of those. (laughs) Correct. Yeah, correct. Good, good point. Um, I mean, really, like, I've always thought my, my blood would probably be above five nanograms, just like when I woke up in the morning. That's what I say. Yeah. I'm just like, I feel like I would I, fail I, I, that I, test. I would honestly be curious to find out. <laughs> Me too. Me too. I'll have to, maybe I can line that up. But uh, this was interesting. The state law reportedly followed a measure enacted by Chicago in 2012, which actually allows police to issue tickets of 250 to $500 for someone caught with 15 grams or less. So technically in the city of Chicago, you could have five more grams than you could in the state of Illinois, if if you got caught, you'd get those fees, though. Of course, it's not like you could have them. That's what sucked about it. Um, you know, the state didn't override laws in cities such as Chicago that already had fines in place. Instead, it created uniformity across the state for towns that didn't have such measures on the books. So um, a little bit of a state step forward and something to keep in the back of our mind that this law established at the time was the fact that you could just have cannabis in your car, let's say in your pocket, and it didn't matter. The fee was the same, no matter the context. It wasn't until legalization that it was like, oh, it must be in this con- this, this container is, with these definitions. This is one of my favorites, yeah. Yeah, so um, definitely no, just important. the fact that if you have a joint in your pocket, if you had a joint in your pocket in the car before legalization, it would have been the decriminalized possession fine and that's mm-hmm. it they they would have probably assessed you to see if you were like affected you know maybe given you a field sobriety test um but now if they catch you with that joint in your pocket it's just equivalent to a dui no matter what just straight off the bat <laughs> absolutely absolutely and it's fucked up it's crazy so in that in that respect the penalties have gotten worse since decriminalization mm-hmm which is crazy. Most people don't think of things well, working. Also, that way. do you remember right after legalization, like a month after they passed that law that made it illegal to get your pet high? Yeah, what I don't actually remember that, but that's they they did. It was like right after legalization, they started criminalizing cannabis further. <laughs> <laughs> Not that people should be getting their pets high, but <laughs> sure, sure. Saying, do we need a law against it that's going to criminalize people <laughs> if they happen to be idiots? Yeah. You, that's crazy that's insane well um so where were we where were we here so on march 23rd 2017 it was reported to the by the chicago tribune that lawmakers here we go people we're getting to present day lawmakers were proposing to legalize adult use cannabis in the state of illinois It was reported that lawmakers didn't intend to bring the measure to a vote until the next year. Hint, hint, they were hoping that Bruce Rauner wasn't going to be in office. Uh, Sponsors introduced bills that would make it legal for adults 21 years of age or older to possess, grow, and buy limited amounts of cannabis. Specifically, the measure would allow residents uh, ages 21 and up 
to possess up to 28 grams of cannabis and to grow five plants. That was everybody. That was the original proposal. It's funny how it all changed. Um, Let's get into that. Uh, It was reported that Governor Bruce Rauner, uh, we'll be getting to that soon. We got to see Bruce Rauner out the door. Uh, Bruce Rauner and the House Speaker Michael Madigan reserved judgment on the new bill, but the Illinois Association of Chiefs of Police did not hesitate to oppose legalization efforts, saying that cannabis poses a threat to public health and safety and causes potential enforcement problems because it conflicts with federal prohibition on marijuana. Um, At the time, as the Chicago Tribune noted, eight states have allowed the sale of the drug generally by referendum, but in Illinois, it's very difficult to get a binding vote on the statewide ballot. So it would take legislative action to change the law, which as we say, or as we like to mention, that means that uh, lobbyists are involved. And somebody made this point to me in the past. It's not that lobbyists or people that try to, people are still involved in referendums, you know, they try to swing those things still. It's not like politics aren't at play with those, but it's a lot more so when we're talking the legislative process. We've legalized. Well, the if you have ballot initiatives, the people just have a much more direct voice. Like you can go over the head of your legislature. And sometimes those ballot initiatives, like they can enact things in the, to the Constitution. I don't know if that's how it works all the time, but uh, either way, you need like more of it. You need more than 51 percent a lot of the time to overturn those things. You need like two thirds or 75 percent. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So it's like the will of the people is like important in those cases, you know, like in Illinois, we're just, you know, we're relying on our representatives. Yeah. Yeah. Which don't, as we're going to find out, don't necessarily speak for the consumer. Um, This is just, (laughs) this is just interesting. You know, you peel back the page and think about when, where we were in 2018. So I believe Trump took office in 2016 um and uh it was reported on april 2nd 2018 that bank of springfield one of the main banks serving illinois medical cannabis companies was pulling out of the industry at the time it was reported that this could leave operators with few options other than dealing in cash in straight cash you know they they obviously accept everything in cash but then they move that to the bank right So this followed Jeff Sessions' random decision to rescind the Cole Memorandum, which was an Obama-era memorandum that the cannabis industry was using to operate under. In short, the memo had indicated that if careful compliance was followed, banks would not be uh, prosecuted by the federal government for working with legal cannabis companies. Um, Nothing ended up materializing with that, fortunately, but I thought it was important to include in in cannabis history because it really shook up not only the Illinois cannabis industry, but the entire industry at large Uh, to have somebody that said, you know, you know, good people don't smoke marijuana. And then to make this random move, um, it was very concerning, uh, concerning for many in the cannabis industry. Um, So, well, and can kind of like maybe like set the context a little bit because yeah like again our rec law was so overregulated, kind of from like a law enforcement perspective and still is you know but it being birthed like around that time you know like i feel like if they were legalizing this year 
it would be probably be a more liberal law, <laughs> yeah. especially after like Missouri has more liberal cannabis laws than we do now. Yeah. Fucking props you to know? Missouri. Props to Missouri. I love what somebody said on Reddit. They said, uh, the grass may not be greener, but at least you can smell it over there. It's good. That's good. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and, uh, and grow it. And grow it. Yeah, exactly. So uh, on August 28th, 2018, with his arm held behind his back, Governor Bruce Rauner signed SB 33 into law. This is a big one for us. I believe this is the one I'm thinking about, uh, Philip. At the time, many were saying that the measure could dramatically expand access to the medical cannabis program. The bill removed major restrictions on the medical cannabis program, including the fingerprinting requirement, the background check, Also, those who complete an online application would now be granted a provisional registration to buy medical cannabis while they wait for the state officials to make a final review of their application. Many refer to this bill as or as part of this bill um, as the opioid alternative program, because uh, part of, like I said, part of the legislation um, allowed those who are prescribed opioids to opt for cannabis as a replacement. In general, as we talked about, Rauner had opposed expanding the medical cannabis program, but a looming election combined with a recent poll showing Pritzker had a large lead may have put pressure on him to support the politically popular measure, something that I didn't include in this uh, paper, but I believe if you go to the citation for this this part of history, uh, you will see that uh, part of Pritzker or sorry, Rauner's consolation was that he disbanded the medical cannabis advisory board altogether. He said, I don't want to hear your, your suggestions anymore, especially if I win governor. So they said, okay, if, if you expand the program so that more people can get in. Right. Um, so in theory, basically you remember earlier when I said that, that it was thematic that they denied the recommendations of the board um, they actually kind of got their recommendations in this consolation, but he said on the fact that you will never have power to give these, con- these, you know, uh, recommendations again, except by the legislative process. <clears throat> so, um, Kevin Sabet, president of smart approaches to marijuana raised concerns about the expansion of the medical marijuana program, warning that it could lead to more addiction, more drivers who are under the influence and more users suffering from the harmful effects of cannabis on attention, memory, decision-making and brain development from a political perspective. It feels like it signals. He feels pressure from JB Pritzker, who has welcomed pot with open arms. As a result of uh, Bruce Rauner's uh, movement, the number of registered patients in the state quickly grew from roughly 42,000 to over 100,000 qualifying patients. On November 6th, 2018, the citizens of Illinois elected Democratic candidate J.B. Pritzker as the next governor of Illinois. Here we go. Several Illinois cannabis companies were were reportedly really excited about the prospect of a cannabis-friendly governor. (laughs) Um, on November 9th, you don't say, <laughs> yeah, on November 9th, 2018, the Chicago Tribune reported that advocates of legal cannabis rejoiced when JB Pritzker was elected governor because they felt it guaranteed they'd be smoking on legal weed by the end of the year. Representative Kelly Cassidy, here's a name that's going to come up a lot, a sponsor for the potential measure was reported as saying this is not a cash cow 
Our goal is not to make money. It's to improve public health, safety, fairness, and the criminal justice system. Oh, God. <laughs> yeah, I had to hit some weed here. Um, you know, at this time, it was reported uh, that 10 states had authorized cannabis consumption. Uh, Michigan voters had approved legalization by binding referendum on Tuesday. So that was close to when we had um, legalized. So the race was on to become the first state in the Midwest to allow the product for sale uh, for adult use. The Michigan well, law. I, the, there, there was a difference between the two because theirs, I think, went into effect relatively immediately. Ours, they passed it in the legislature at the end of May. He didn't sign it till the end of June. And then legalization didn't kick in for six months. Not that it yeah. made that big of not that it made that big of a difference because they still arrest people for pretty much the same thing now as they did then. But it's just <laughs> yes. it's always been just so silly in my mind to think like, oh yeah, remember those six months where we were just like waiting for it to be legal? Yeah, and I remember when people like the when it, we found out we could grow, people were like, "Can I fucking plant my seeds now?" I mean, <laughs> it's hemp at this point, right? <laughs> yeah, you could you could start like uh, two months out. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So yeah, no. To your point, the Michigan law allowed adults to have, use, and grow the drug, um, and that took effect. Uh, actually, it took effect a month later. Um, from the passage, but it took, it, they said it, at the time it may take another two years for regulations for retail sales. So like you said, that was, that was off in the distance, but at least relatively immediately, they got the ability to have use and grow cannabis. So on May 16th, 2019, it was reported that sponsors had unveiled their first draft of a cannabis legalization bill in Illinois. The proposed law would allow possession of up to 30 grams, which had changed from the the initial proposal that was kind of talked about in the past. I think they proposed 28 grams in the past. Um, it also mentioned a $20 million low interest loan program to promote social equity and business ownership, expungement of misdemeanor and class four felony uh, cannabis convictions. And it was reported that under the new proposed rules, no new large-scale commercial grows would be permitted to set up shop, at least for now. Instead, the focus would be on small craft growers with an emphasis of helping people of color become entrepreneurs in the weed industry. In addition, adults would be allowed to grow up to five plants per household in a, in a locked room out of public view with the permission of the landowner. This quote's good. We have to ensure it's not a small group of people getting very rich, said Representative Kelly Cassidy. We want to make a lot of new business leaders in the state through this process. <clears throat> so just a week, only a week after the first draft of the legalization bill had been published on May 14th, 2019, it was reported that sponsors made changes to the legalization bill that had been drafted in order to appease critics. One of the most fundamental changes that were, was proposed was the elimination of a provision to allow all adults to cultivate up to five plants of cannabis. Senator Heather Staines, uh, state Senator Heather Staines, state representative Kelly Cassidy, state representative uh, and State Representative Toy Hutchinson confirmed on the record that they were strongly considering the limitation. Westchester Police Chief uh, West 
Chester Police Chief Steve Stelter, president of the Illinois Chief of Police Association, welcomed the proposed change, saying it would help prevent illegal growing operations. So this is a funny one. Illinois police fundamentally opposed legalization. However, they argued that if it was allowed, then the police want a bigger cut of the proceeds for what they fear will be increased safety risks. I never so, understood that. Or they always say, like, we want more training to detect uh, people that have been smoking weed and driving. And it's like, well, shouldn't you guys have been doing that before? Yeah. <laughs> like, what what means have you been using all these years to detect whether people are <laughs> true? True. <laughs> That's funny. That's hilarious. It makes no. It just makes the like argument. It just makes no sense. Like, or wanting a device for it. It's like it's not like it's not like the use is so widespread. That's part of the reason that people say we're legalizing it. <laughs> Exactly. Exactly. No, that's funny. I mean, it's like, how have you been making all these arrests all these years? Just been winging it. Well, or you, like you don't. You don't have like a Xanax breathalyzer. <laughs> yes, exactly. Or like a Vicodin breathalyzer. Like, what's so special about weed that you need a little breathalyzer for it? Yeah. But yet they pump all this funding into that kind of research. Yeah, it is. It is fucking crazy, and. Well, it's the same it, thing as it's the same thing as everything with, you know, the problems with weed here. It's lobbyists that lobby for that kind of funding to, you know. Yeah. Well, and frankly, like, I don't know, people like don't ever think about this, maybe, but like breathalyzers themselves are not like it's not an indicator of of intoxication, in my opinion. I mean, certainly, well, you know. Yeah. And alcohol is also like weed you know i'm not gonna like recommend drinking and driving but i would say if someone never drinks and they have a beer and they get behind the wheel they're going to be probably more affected than someone who drinks all the time and has like three beers and gets correct yeah yeah exactly exactly so um yeah at the time uh, this was at the time the Illinois normal is I don't believe any of the these members that we I think there's only maybe one member that I mentioned, but I don't think any of these people are in Illinois normal anymore. But this was the executive director of the longtime cannabis activist group, Illinois normal. It was Dan Lynn at the time. He said he'd have to consult with his advisory board on how to react to such a change. We're talking about the change with home cultivation being struck. We'd have to look at whether we're still able to support the legislation. People say to pass the best bill you can and come back later to try and make it better. But we've Ugh. seen significant problems with the existing medical cannabis program that we still have not been able to fix. Great point, Dan Lynn. Well, that's, um, one of my that's one of my takeaways from like the timeline was like Governor Pritzker got elected and he wanted this win. And I think the people that were like behind the legislation also wanted this win and they didn't yes. want to wait another year or two and try to do the actual work to get a good law. Yeah. I think that's what happened. And then cannabis just isn't a hot enough issue after you legalize it to get changes, especially when you're dependent on your legislature. Yeah. So, so they like kind of fucked us. <laughs> 
Well, and frankly, if you're even still listening to this right now, I don't want to say that it, that the stoner community is a monolith by any means, because it's definitely not. But I just feel like most people that are stoners don't care maybe about some of this stuff. Maybe we lost some people already. <laughs> um, and so, you know, for the people that do, you are in maybe a, min- a minority. Again, maybe you are in the majority. Maybe there's a lot of people that are still here and they're like, Cole, get on with it. In that case, I'll, I'll get on with it. Um, <laughs> but it just seems that not a lot of people get this stuff. But I'm going to get on with it for those folks that are like. I mean, there are there are some people that are interested, but it's, yeah, it's like us. I mean, after you legalize and most people can walk to a store and get access to it, that fire to get real change for any more kind of legalization or decriminalization. I feel like it's really hard. Just yeah. look at, I mean, even with the activism you see in Chicago, you know, it's so hard for them to get any changes just because the entrenched interests in Springfield spreading their money around, you know, they yeah. have priority, they have priority. Well, and you know, to a certain extent, cannabis legalization itself probably got people that maybe didn't, care about the issue but it still got people that were like yeah that's wrong we need to change that but maybe they didn't totally understand what was going into this you know like for example if i showed my mom like this fucking document that i have that's like 20 pages long at this point um and we've i've not even documented up to modern day i've gotten very close but uh anyways i'd show her this and she'd be like why why do i care about this you it's legal you're doing you, you know you people can go to the store and they don't go to jail anymore but mm-hmm. this stuff still matters because like you say there are a lot of people that are still going to jail and we're about to well, and one of the things i think people need to understand is even when you change the federal laws they have to be changed at the state level yes federally legalizing weed won't change illinois criminal penalties for weed I mean, that might be more incentive and less of an argument for police to use against changing that kind of thing. But like people will still keep going to jail as long as the laws are that way here. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So, yeah, concerns were floated by then director uh, Dan Lynn, like I said, that existing growers would not be able to keep up with demand, resulting in shortages, shortages that were seen in other states that had legalized cannabis I'm concerned with how much of a handout this is to the current industry. They crafted this this legislation to give them an extreme advantage. If we have a limited amount of suppliers, prices are going to continue to be high. At the time of the reporting, a study by industry operators found that current growers could meet the state's demand. Now, that's the study from industry operators uh, for the drug for up to four years. That's in contrast uh, to an analysis done by normal that concluded that those studies, um, or sorry, in contrast, an analysis by normal concluded that those studies underestimated demand and that more growers will be needed. That was the um, Medical Cannabis Alliance, right? Uh, I believe that they did fund that study. Yes. Yeah. So Cannabis Business Association now. Well, and I just wanted to read this quote, like, because you hear yeah. those two studies, they submitted those two studies. This is just a quote. It's from an article from like August of 2019, but it just says CBAI, Cannabis Business Association's leadership is in close contact with the Pritzker administration and according to a press release are pleased with the cooperation they have received. Like, come on. (laughs) Yeah. Like, who do you think, who do you think like really had their ear? 
Right. Yeah. What else are you supposed to think when you read statements like that? Well, and that's one of the things I'm always struck by when you hear Pam Eltoff from that organization talk is she always she's she's referenced a couple times to talking about new social equity craft growers and social equity dispensaries. She said, oh, we we look forward to welcoming these new uh, businesses as partners. Yeah. Like, no. Right. <laughs> but like, look, and I, I, I'm not, you know, you got to do what you got to do, but we're seeing but just that the way play she out. frames it, even the way she just talks about it shows that like her mentality is like, they own it. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Like we, we, we will welcome you as members. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. And again, like I'm saying, we're, we're seeing that play out. I mean, pe- many people are airing concerns about what social equity candidates are going to do right now. And I've seen some of them start to join cannabis Illinois and it's because they get the shit done. You know, they get what they want. I don't blame anybody uh, for, for doing that. Um, so, uh, Ultimately, the measure would allow for up to 500 cannabis shops and uh, existing medical dispensaries would be the first to uh, open, uh, allowed to open 55 of those. Um, it was reported that the state Senate on, and on May 30th, 2019, held a bipartisan vote, which sent the House a measure that would allow residents uh, to, you know, legally possess cannabis, the law that we know today. Um, to win support, sponsors made changes so that only those who are registered medical cannabis patients in the state of Illinois may cultivate cannabis at home. They also modified provisions dealing with expungement of criminal records. It made it so that certain cannabis offenses would be expunged so long as such convi- convictions are not associated with a violent crime, which I think is fucking stupid because... No, but not even that. The the crimes that they expunged were like so minor. The the only automatic expungements, I think, were like possession of less than 30 grams, wasn't it? I believe so. And then you could petition, you could petition for a bunch of other ones. But if you had sold more than 30 grams, you weren't eligible for any kind of change to your sentence. Yeah. So that's one of the funny things about like like making right the wrongs of the war on drugs. Well, you didn't even like relieve those people of their charges. Yeah. Yeah. It's fucking crazy. And, uh, I, I, this, my thing is like, if I punch you in the face, but I'm high, it shouldn't be like, it should only be that I punched you in the face that I get that I'm getting in trouble for. Cole, I've heard you talk about this too. I don't even know if that's the distinction. I think sometimes when they say, nonviolent cannabis offense like i think if you have a gun with you okay i think that's a distinction a lot of the time but like even that it's like well yeah you're you're dealing weed like you kind of want to you know like that's the circumstances (laughs) you're living in you kind of want to like you're going to penalize me for wanting to protect myself like people rob weed dealers yeah, and frankly, you require uh, the de- de- like the state requires deliveries to like kind of be secure. I believe they have to carry a gun. I think you're like, right. Yeah, yeah. Two, so two people, two two armed people, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So uh, on May 31st, 
2019, it was reported that the Illinois House approved a bill that had been passed by the Senate. J.B. Pritzker almost immediately issued a statement in which he promises promised to sign a bill, which I think goes to your point. They were, you know, working. Everybody was working hand in hand because uh, he just issued a statement immediately saying that he uh, wanted to sign the bill because it offered the most equity centric approach in the nation. So interesting stuff. That was on May 31st. Later that day, Representative Carol Ammons gave a passionate speech after the House vote for the legalization of cannabis in Illinois. So before we watch the Am- the Carol Ammons video, which like I was saying, uh, after the Illinois House approved the bill, um, that meant that it would be going to J.B. Pritzker uh, for his signature. And almost immediately, he said he was going to sign the bill. So um, Carol Ammons made a statement after the bill. She actually abstained from voting. We're going to look, we're going to watch that statement here in a moment. Uh, I just forgot to show you all earlier. We mentioned uh, documents that were released via a FOIA request from the Quinn administration. This first document that we're looking at, and we've got them in our citations, but I thought it was important to show this i is everything out of the way phil are you able to see Mm -hmm. everything yeah cool um so this is the confidential cultivation center thing and you can see that it's interesting pts which we're going to go into in a little bit pts is one of the largest contributors uh to legal cannabis and it's interesting to see them dq'd and some of these dqs like if you think about uh, we'll be looking at this here in a second. The dispensary DQs, there's this health central one. That's the Jack Lavin. And so it's like, I'm wondering if they like arbitrary, I don't want to say arbitrarily made these DQs, but if they chose the DQs based on optics, right? That's what it would seem like. Yeah. Cause that's one of the things that if I turn the page, back, they ended up, they ended up that health central ended up getting those licenses. Cause that's a send now. Right. I actually don't know about that. That's a good I'm question. I'm pretty sure that's what those, I think they did get them. Damn. Well, that's, that's kind of interesting that that ended up working out for them. But yeah, uh, you know, Bruce Rauner, one of the things he had said was that, you know, they were looking into why some of the people were um, disqualified because they didn't want to go to court, frankly, you know, um, based off of the former administration's decisions either. So um, anyways, th- those are so there's this this is the um, dispensary document, which I encourage you all to look at your own look on your own time at, at these names and maybe even investigate some of these LLCs and see if they're still donating money to this day. It's interesting. This Phoenix Farms. Um, I did some Googling and I don't know if I'm misunderstanding something, but it appears that one of the owners of Phoenix Farms was a registered agent at the Illinois Department of either medical cannabis or agriculture. But I don't know if that's because she was a dispensary owner. Like that's why she was a registered agent because mm-hmm. they call them yeah. registered agents, you know. So, um, but it, it's when I Googled her name that it showed up and it, it also showed contact information for the division of public health or whatever. And it just, to me, it looked like she was a former employee, but again, I couldn't find anything. Well, I mean, that's, that's not uncommon. There's that one guy, Jeff Cox, 
Yes. We shared those articles about who like, I don't know exactly if he was like Department of Ag or IDFPR, but he was in charge of like regulating cultivation. Yeah. So he didn't he didn't move right to PTS. He moved to an interim company owned by the same one of the same guys. And then now he works at PTS as a vice president of like compliance for cultivation. Yeah. So another example of uh, of the revolving door that you were talking about earlier, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, What was I going to say with that? I can't. uh, uh, Oh, Jeff Cox. He was the head of the division of medicinal plants. That was before the cannabis division had actually Mm -hmm. been created. So the cannabis division got created with the CRTA. Um, Hmm. But before that, it was the division of medicinal plants. So kind of interesting there. Um, Okay, so let's get into the uh, Ammons bill or Ammons speech. Once again, she abstained from voting. Um, Let's find out why. Okie doke. Let's watch this. Voting president, Senate Bill 1932, having received the constitutional majority, is hereby declared passed. Representative Ammons, for words do you seek recognition? Thank you, Mr. Speaker. Point of personal privilege. Please proceed, Representative. It is with great disappointment that I stand in this chamber being denied the right to speak to the devastation that has impacted our community for generations. I grew up in the city of... Just going to pause this for a second. If you guys are wondering if the video is lagging, no, it's the video quality is just this bad. Okay, going to continue. <laughs> Joliet, where Stateville Prison is located, and have watched generations of black men be locked up for the possession of drugs in this country. I listened to my colleague Tapetti lay out very clearly the intentional destruction of black communities across this country, but specifically in the state of Illinois. And I stand here today having been denied the right to speak on the most important legislation that will impact our communities in my lifetime. And I am offended by that denial. Our community has suffered untold harm and many devastations that we cannot just wipe over because we need revenue in the state of Illinois. I agree with my colleagues on the right and the left that this legislation will have unintended consequences. Will those consequences remedy the 40 to 50 years of drug devastation that has destroyed the communities of East St. Louis, Danville, Joliet, the south and west sides of Chicago. For generations, we have had to wait for our emancipation. For generations, we've been denied access to jobs and education and training and opportunity. For generations, our children have looked at us as if we have not done our due diligence. And today, the very denial of my right to stand before this body and express the harm and devastation that we've experienced. This law will not legalize drugs for our communities. 
this legislation will still see devastation on the behalf of those who are stopped by the police as a result. We are calling for an international declaration for the renewal of people of African descent in this state from this day forward. We deserve justice and access to justice in every single way. We are calling on this governor to make sure that he not only enforces equality and justice as it pertains to this legislation, but everything that goes forward. It is not good enough that we simply expunge records for those of low-level marijuana possession. That is not good enough that young black men and women have to walk around and, and be saddled, be saddled with the results of this legislation going forward. We know that the people who are going to benefit from this are already benefiting. They're already benefiting economically. We know that black communities from the top to the bottom of this state are struggling economically. And this does nothing to solve that problem. And so I call on my colleagues to look at this issue as a justice issue and not a revenue one. We understand that the state is strapped for cash, but it is certainly not because black communities have stolen those dollars. We have been denied equal justice under the law, and we have been stopped at three to four times higher rates than any other community. And we call on justice today for our communities, and this measure must be looked at as simply a beginning and not an end. We will not stop fighting for our communities from this day forward. And we call on the Democratic Party of Illinois to stand with us to bring justice and equality to our communities in every single area of life. I refuse to vote on a bill that would not allow me to speak to it. And I hope that people of Illinois will do better for the communities who are suffering. Do not make them victims. Do not make them victims of our legislation. I want to acknowledge the profound need for justice for us, the untold suffering and evils that our people have suffered in this country, from slavery to emancipation to post-Jim Crow era to drug laws and to the drug war. We have suffered. And we demand better from this institution. I hope that we are not doing the wrong thing by our community. I thank my colleague, Representative Petty, for putting on record the true reality of how we've gotten to this point. And I thank him for being a voice for us. I thank all of my new members who stood on this issue. I do appreciate all the work that has been done to get us to this point, but I don't believe we've done all that we can do to bring about justice and equity. Thank you so much, Mr. Speaker, for allowing me to speak today. And thank you so much for all that you do. Thank you. So, um, love that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's uh that's great well i think it too like i like because i never saw that until like a week ago or whatever 
I think it shows that like there are clearly legislators that knew that this wasn't up to snuff and it wasn't good enough. And when she said like she hopes we're not doing more damage to communities by passing this, it's like I think you could argue that like the way the CRTA passed and what's happened since has like if they had taken another year or two, that might have been better than passing what they did. Because I oftentimes like like these referendums that are up in states, you know, I'll read on social media, there'll be some argument, oh, you should vote for it, you should vote against it. And people who want people to vote for it will always be like, well, you can't just be opposed because it's not perfect. And it's like, I think with cannabis policy, you should specifically just because the interest just isn't there after it's in effect. <laughs> well said. Like that's hey, you just one, lose it. I think that's the one thing Illinois should show people, you know, and I think there's other states like Washington doesn't have home grow still, you know, and they've been legal for how many years? For a long time. And I think it's a similar thing. Like they have a very hard time getting their legislature to like focus on something like that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's the perfect example, too, is Washington. I was actually thinking about that earlier as well. You know, like you say, one of the first states to do it, and they still don't have home grow. It's funny. Well, New, Jer New Jersey doesn't even have medical home grow. So, true. I mean, I wonder how long it'll take them to even get that. Yeah. Yeah. It's pretty nuts how uh, you would think that just cultivation goes hand in hand with legalization. The fact that like it was literally at a time a South Park joke that they were like they did a, a episode on MedMen and they were like blowing up grow houses and they used it in South Park. I want to be very clear that uh, they were like pointing to all these grow houses blowing up and they were like, see, it's dangerous business cultivating, you know, <laughs> and uh, Dude, I mean, that's a joke. But like, I really think that even in like states where it is fully legal, like to home grow like a state like Michigan, like it could get to a point where they try to scale that back, you know, like everything in like politics and culture is kind of like a pendulum. Absolutely. So, you know, you, you have all that progress and then, oh, well, it might not be that way all the time. Yeah. Yeah. You can't take especially, it for granted. Well, especially because like the same reason that it's not a popular issue after you pass legalization is like, even for a lot of people that use cannabis, they might just use it like once a week or once a month, you know? So like, you might still be able to convince a person like that, like, oh, this high potency stuff, it's making people psychotic. They're going out there and murdering people, mm -hmm. you know? So even like people who use it can be convinced of crazy stuff about it. Oh, absolutely. Especially concentrate. People look at it and they don't know what it is and you can convince them of almost anything like, yeah, this is, you know, mm -hmm. whatever. So, but you, you latched onto something that I thought was really important in her speech. She, she said and looked around at all of them and said, we know who this is going to benefit and who is mm -hmm. not going to benefit from this. We know, you know, and I, I actually am very curious well, to see. Oh, go ahead. And I would say, too, you could say that pretty much about any legislation that has passed, passed since then. 
you know, unless in this session they pass stuff to help these craft growers have like larger canopies and stuff. Like when they made it easier for dispensaries to open, like having the dispense, like Ben Kovler is always tweeting about wanting more dispensaries in Illinois. It's not because he's worried about social equity because he wants more dispensaries to sell his products in. Yeah. You know, it's so it's. Yeah. Yeah. I'd like to see. (laughs) No, it's okay. I'd like to see. She mentioned Representative Petty put something on the record. Um, I didn't realize this until we just watched it now. So again, we're putting this information out there, folks, so that you can dig into this and 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 fill in the dots. I took a note that I'm going to try to look into whatever Representative Petty put on the record and see if I can find it because. She, oh yeah, she, I heard that. I didn't catch that reference when I listened to it before, and I was same. Kinda... Same. It went right over my head the first time I listened. So I, I I caught that the second time, and I took it as a note to dig into because she was claiming she couldn't put anything on the record. That's her big thing. I can't even speak to this. What's going on? And we're about to get to, to this actually, uh, but really quick, uh, let's just do a breakdown uh, from a report, and we're going to get right back to Carol Ammons. Uh, by the Tr- Chicago Tribune, they just did a, a quick summary on the CRTA. I think this is interesting, and maybe you have some thoughts or commentary on this. After paying for regulatory expenses and costs related to the expungement process, cannabis revenue would be divided among a number of areas. The largest share, 35%, would go to the state's general fund, which uh, th- that's another interesting thing that she said, Not to like, but let's go off on a path for a second. She said, let's not look at this as a revenue generator. Let's look at this as something that's actually going to change, you know, our lives <laughs> and mm-hmm. maybe our kids' lives and stuff like that. She, it just seemed like she was coming from a good place in that speech. And she was obviously emotional, um, which I don't know. It was just a powerful speech. You, you Like you said, I didn't see it until the first time last week. And I think I... Uh, you know, sent it to you. And I'm just like, how did, how did this not go viral or something? Is it because of the quality well, of the video? I'm just joking. <laughs> well, and like, you know, who's watching speeches from the Illinois legislature. <laughs> sure. Sure. But that is like one clip of her specific speech. And it was so powerful, you know, it, sometimes. Oh, yeah. No. And the way she's, I mean, she's clearly like feeling what she's talking about. Uh, yeah, yeah, that's such a great clip. You know, I could watch that like a hundred times. <laughs> I know. Yeah. It, and, it, and frankly, it should be played at any time uh, we're, we're bountying about or, or we're thinking about rather uh, improving the cannabis legislation. Like they should be like, hey, let's look at let's watch this video and then let's have the conversation. You know, just let her just let her write the legislation. She seems to know what's. Yeah. Her and Mary Flowers, right? (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Yeah. Quick shout out to them. And we can talk more about them, but really quick, the largest share, 35% would go into the state's general fund, 25% to community grants, 20% to mental health, substance abuse programs, 10% to state pay down the state's backlog of unpaid bills, 8% to law enforcement, 2% for public education. So, what percent was the R three? I don't know. I didn't. I didn't specifically note that. But it I was think a it's big... like a, it's like a significant chunk. The thing I think is funny about the concept, like, do you think R three would be the community grants? Probably, yeah. So t- I think twenty five percent. Yeah, the thing I think is just funny about that is the idea that you are taxing the same people you perpetrated the war on drugs on to fix the damage you did from the war on drugs. 
Right. Our bad. Hey, why don't like you pay I, us back for that? Yeah. Like I get it. They don't want to like tax police salaries or uh, cigarettes or alcohol anymore or something, but it's just always in my mind. It's like, I get that it's going to a good place, but like, why are you taxing the same people you were like fucking with before? <laughs> mm-hmm. Exactly. Well, uh, let's let's talk a little bit more about Carol Ammons because it really sets us up for the the best part of our show. I think um, I really wish we could have led with this, but it's important to set the stage. How do we get to where we are today? And as you can see, we made these mistakes with the medical cannabis program, arguably, um, and he, and here we are again um, drafting what seems to be a, a overly strict cannabis legalization law so on june 5th 2019 so you remember that speech carol ammons gave was on may 31st that's when the house i believe sent it off that was the last six so all all that's left to happen is jb pritzker's signature and we've got legal legal cannabis in illinois um, on June 5th, 2019, WILL Illinois reported that State Representative Carol Ammons did not vote on the Cannabis Regulation and Tax Act in Illinois because she didn't have a chance to express her concerns about the legislation. She felt concerned that people will still be charged with cannabis offenses under the new law. <laughs> this is this is exactly what you brought up earlier. Yeah. <laughs> so <It's> like, uh, yeah. <laughs> So, and, and, you know, it's funny because this, this is like something we say all the time between messages or on Reddit. And some people give me shit for saying this, frankly, but here's Ammons saying something very similar. Ammons was reported as saying, I think it's a step forward in the right direction, but it does not completely legalize marijuana in the state of Illinois. We always say it's not actually legal. That's what I was referencing. Um, I like there, to do the, I like to do the CRTA. It regulated and taxed cannabis. It didn't end the war on weed. Yes, that is perfect. I think that's a good way to say it. It is. A, it is the perfect way to say it because it's literally, yeah, it's the cannabis regulation, it's regulation and tax and act. Tax act. <laughs> we're just regulating and taxing it. Yep. Um, but we're leaving everything else pretty much the same. <laughs> exactly. Except, that, except they didn't want to build any more medical dispensaries. So they were like, here, you can have home grow because you'd probably be way too loud about the lack of access. Yes. Yep. Exactly. So, um, yeah, like she, you know, she said there are still, there are still penalties involved and included in this bill that could result in criminal action against people who may not understand what legalization actually means in implementation form. I mean, thank you, Carol Ammons. What people think when they think of cannabis legalization is just like with the legalization of any other drug. And I just like to use alcohol and cigarettes as an example. Like for the most part, we can go to the store and buy as much as we want and we can share them with friends. Now I know that like sharing loose or selling loose cigarettes is something you can and people do get in trouble for in States. Um, But I'm just saying, generally speaking, the regulation around those those substances are quite loose, actually. Uh, like minors get it all the time. That's why police set up stings for that those substances, right? Um, frankly, cannabis dispensaries have better compliance than liquor stores because well, you have to scan your ID like, and the compliance and all the overregulation is part of like 
suppressing small business. Absolutely. I mean, that's in my eyes, you know, like the excessive, like, you know, you have to have 10 people on staff to do all this crazy shit to be in compliance. You know, your payroll is going to be like insane. Like what kind of like little mom and pop is going to be able to like meet those, you know, it's like you make the obligation so high, you essentially eliminate any small business. Well, and your security plan has to be so crazy. You have to wire yourself up so that you're constantly monitored by the (laughs) Illinois state police. That's the one that is so, yeah, that's the one that's pretty insane to me. Yeah. It's pretty nuts. Like it's a retail store. Why why are the cops watching a retail store? (laughs) Yeah. And frankly, dude, uh, so our co-host, Justine, uh, you know, my partner, she used to work in a dispensary and the police, I don't know exactly how it works with adult use. I know that technically speaking, they can't store data, but when you get checked in, like when you go into a dispensary, you're checked in. That's how the bud tender knows to call you up. There's an order. Of course, they're supposed to call med first and definitely for med because that's a state tracking system inherently. They can see that you're there. They can see what you buy and they're watching you there. Like they know that you're there. Um, I don't know exactly, like I said, how it works for adult use. She didn't uh, stay long for adult use because the first days were crazy. Um, and she, oh, yeah. frankly, I think they were breaking labor law, but I'm not going to make any crazy accusations on here. Anyways, the point is, I don't know exactly how it works, but let me just put it this way. The, the reason I bring this up is because there's this crazy story that happened once. Um, there was this individual at a medical cannabis dispensary. I'll make this quick so we can get back to Carol Ammons. Um, and he had like uh, an individual accompany him into the lobby, which I think at the time, at the time was somehow allowed because whatever. But the point is that the individual was like giving them money and the police like called them, called the dispensary and said, hey, there's an individual in your lobby right now. They're exchanging money. What's what's going on? And they had to like go out and intervene and be like, no, no, no. What are you guys doing that you can't? So they're watching that closely, or at least they can. That's the point. So anyways, you're right. The, the overregulation is another way to keep small business out. I didn't mean to like get into the mud on that. Hey, love a good, love a good tangent. Yeah. So um, when, when she was asked to elaborate on the point on, you know, she was saying that, uh, She's saying there's still penalties involved. People might be confused, you know, not know what legalization actually meant. She was really concerned about that and wanted to make sure that the public understood that the bill itself still included points where criminalization could take place. When she was asked to elaborate on that point, Representative Ammon said, if you're caught with 31 grams or above, there's still penalties included in this legislation. So you can get a misdemeanor. You can still get a felony as a result of possession and I was very concerned about it at that point. She voiced that she wanted stronger reforms in the cannabis bill in the past. And um, you, you asked about it earlier before we move on to, you know, she was asked a lot for clarity there earlier in the year. um, Representative Ammons had filed a competing legalization bill that would have allowed an unlimited number of indoor and outdoor growers, which is like, Uh, wait, I thought it was 24. The Chicago Tribune reported an unlimited number, but it's possible that another it's possible that maybe she filed a different bill. 
Um, it was called, I believe. I mean, the, either way, that's a good amount. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah. And would have required that a majority of licenses for growers and retailers go to minorities. It would have also, per, this is why I think it didn't go anywhere. Listen to this part. It also would prohibit any cannabis company or political action committee to make a campaign contribution to promote a candidate or pol- or public official. Yeah. Well, we can't have that. We can't have well, it. Was, it, it was illegal at first. Correct. And I can't was, find that article where they, I can't, I can't find that article from, where it was retrieved, but yeah. Or, I did. It's uh, it's in like March of 2017. Okay. And there's actually an article where like, it's like companies can now make political contributions, but they're weighing whether they will. <laughs> you need to send me that article. I need to add it to this, to yeah, this and, document. Uh, like, and the CEO of Cresco, Charlie Bechtel, he's like in there talking about it. And he's just like, he's like, oh, I don't know if we will. Like we're thinking about it. It's like, yeah, you're clearly going to. <laughs> <laughs> right. And they did. And we're going to be got a lot of papers on that to see where they spent their money and, and other organizations. Right. Um, so Ammons was asked in those final moments, what convinced her that she couldn't vote in support of the measure. And she said, ultimately, I think my expression, the expression, sorry, I think ultimately my expression of my constituents issues on both sides of this issue needed to be put on the record. And not being able to do that prior to the vote made me say, well, you know what? This is not something I can go forward with. It was important that our constituents' voices were heard at that time. So. At least someone was speaking for the people. That's what I'm saying. Like, that was a powerful statement, too. That was a very powerful statement. And I, you know, when, when people are prevented from making statements. What else are we supposed to think? Like why, why well, right. not take a little bit of time? Let's get this right. Well, that's what it, yeah. It just seems like it was very like pushed through, you know, and not a lot of consideration that like, it might be kind of hard to come back and fix it. Yeah. And I mean, we, just, and not just because there was a pandemic, which is always the fucking excuse. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm trying to think, but, but the pandemic wasn't a thing just yet. Um, you know, it was 2019 still. It's hard to th- well post. I mean, it was right after implementation. Yes, yes, and we're gonna yes. That'll. But also, my thing about that that I think is funny is like the whole pandemic, we just expected like food industry workers or like Walmart workers or grocery store workers to go to work and just get paid their same hourly wage. But God forbid lawmakers get into a room and like do some work, like essential right. work. <laughs> right. That's not essential work. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's just, uh, it's crazy. Like you say, I I think that it's like, what, what, so my question is, I'm trying to think about the timing here. They knew governor Pritzker was, he wasn't in office yet. Was he, was that the problem or was that the thing? I think they Uh, come into office at the start of 2019 is when their year, their term starts, right? Okay, so maybe he was he was already in office. I can't remember. I'm trying to think of when the timing was. I was just trying to think like if I mean if he's going to be in office especially for a few more years, I didn't know if maybe a midterm was coming up like were they concerned that they weren't going to have control? Like is that why there was a rush? I don't know. Just trying to give a benefit of the No, doubt. no, no, cuz it was at the start of his term. 
That's what I thought. So that's what I'm. That's why yeah, he assumed so office January fourteenth, twenty nineteen. January fourteenth, twenty nineteen, and so, but, but this stuff, May thirtieth, twenty nineteen, was when the Senate sent it to the House, and then May thirty first. So that's after he had taken office, correct? Yeah, I mean, they passed it in like six months, and then sales started six months later. That's kind of what I'm saying about like the rush. And we were also at the time, I mean, I think only Arizona's, as far as I know, like Arizona is known for being like a very quick legalization to sales because they had so much of like a medical infrastructure. But Illinois was also relatively quick, you know, like some states take years to do it. Right, right. We did it within six months. That's the one thing they always like to say, you know, which, yeah. Um, okay. Well, here we are to the money. Show me the money. On August, on August 2nd, 2019, the Chicago Tribune reported that the currently licensed cannabis companies, their executives and lobbyists were linked to more than 630,000 and political giving since January of 2017. So that's, when did you say that story was again? That you, was it in 2018 or something? Which story? The, the giving, uh, when they were like, oh, I don't know. I think I'm going to give. Maybe we'll start oh, giving. Well, because they, yeah, they changed the, that cannabis companies could donate. They changed that in March of 2017. And then they were all like a lot of their first donations come in in like July or September of that year. So just okay. like four or six months later. Gotcha. Gotcha. Like, yeah, like PTS, like Lou Lang was taking money from like PTS, Cresco and Pharmacan back then. Let's see. And I might actually have a report on that. We can share. Um, what did you say from Cresco or PTS? Yeah. I mean, they, they were given to like a lot of people back then. I focused more on like post 2020, but. Yeah, but you're right. I see representative Lou Lang here. Uh, I'll share my screen. They gave to like Don Harmon a lot. Yeah. And we need to folks, if you're wondering how we found these numbers, we'll show you here in just a moment. Cause this is the other point of, of all this, uh, definitely trying to share the knowledge. Okay. So can you, there's a little gray box, I think, at the bottom, but you can see in line seven and eight an amount of $5,000 in 2017 to Lou Lang. This is from PTS. Um, so these are all PTS uh, all donations. Um, I guess I've only got them till 2018. Do you have any record of anything after 2018? Well, PTS stops. PTS doesn't do that much uh, later on, partially because Verano starts giving, and I kind of think they have shared ownership. (laughs) Yeah. Do you want to? So let's. Can you tell us about your uh, hypothesis there? But do you also think it's just something? I mean, you could just base it off that one picture that has that NMI management. And I mean, you don't need to share the guy's like handle or anything, but in my management, I'm there, not. there's like a picture on social media of 
someone's office door and it says NMI management, which is a company owned by David flood. And then it says Verano on the same sign, but David flood is more associated with PTS. Yeah. I was going to say and he's like, actually and consume dispensaries. So there's some link between Verano and PTS. Interesting. But and also when you look at their donations, like it seems like PTS doesn't really give that much later on. And it's more like Verano and even like Ataraxia still is making donations in like 2021. Yeah. Um, do you think it'd be worth showing your, uh, I can show your handwritten contributions oh, of all the companies? Don't show my handwriting. Don't show my handwriting. <laughs> <laughs> you, you just joking or are you serious? No, you could. Okay. I was just making sure if you didn't want me to share um, so you can see contributions. I, you want to read it? I can scroll down. Yeah. Well, those are just all that's since 2020. That's who like funds, uh, or makes contributions to the cannabis business association of Illinois, which oh, is like, are, yeah. Explain yeah. So that's yeah. cannabis business association is like, <clears throat> I mean, to get back to it, there's that story in the Tribune or sometimes from a long time ago, they talk about how David flood, the guy from PTS, he started it. Uh, they started it as the Illinois relief fund. Oh yeah. Here I can, I have actually GTI, got that report. GTI gave a bunch of money to it too, uh, to start it up back in the day. They've since like distanced themselves from it, but they still do their own lobbying. Um, yeah, but they, I mean, essentially, I would argue it's like a cartel. <laughs> like a cartel so, is like a group of businesses that get together to conspire to keep prices high and limit competition. I don't know what you would describe them as otherwise. Yeah, and it's interesting. Freaking Dynavaps on this list. They've been on this podcast before, and I like their equipment. Mm -hmm. I was really upset to see that. Ricky Hendon is a weird one to see on this list for $300. I don't understand what that could be. You know, what, mm -hmm. why $300? I don't understand, but Ascend 47,000. Yeah. Um, yeah. The bigger ones are like Ascend. Nature's Grace. Armacan, Nature's Grace. Well, and Nature's Grace is owned by like this O'Hearn family, which seem to be some kind of like livestock farmers in Western yes. Illinois. Um, and he's like Larry O'Hearn, the leader, the patriarch of the family is like the chair for this cannabis business association. Yeah. But yeah, now the group is led by Pam Altoff. And the reason it's like you shared that, uh, clip of like Doug Kelly and Ambrose and down at like the union club. I don't know where they were in Chicago, but someone asked them why it's so hard to move legislation. Mm -hmm. And that guy, Doug Kelly starts by saying like, I don't want to ruffle too many feathers in the room, but he was clearly talking about the lobbyists and right. Pam, Pam Altoff was in the room and just happened to get up and like, just start speaking her mind, like kind of in defense of herself was how I interpreted it. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I would assume that they're like one of the biggest obstacles to any progress, you know, like all the, a lot of these companies do their own lobbying, of course, but this kind of seems to be like where they come together. And, and Pam Altoff seems to have like some weird ties. Like she seems to be very close to law enforcement. Yes. So it's like, are these companies like lobbying with law enforcement? 
<laughs> and I mean, in some respects, it's been reported that they have uh, with regard to at least being on the same side of opposing. Well, against Homegrow, uh, yeah. Homegrow, yes. Yeah. Well, um, the, I was, continued, the continued criminalization of like, you know, the casual production and giving away of cannabis, you know, benefits them more than anybody. Mm-hmm. Um. Uh, so Altoff, Pam Altoff was once named Legislator of the Year by the Illinois Chiefs of Police. That was in 2016. Um, she's a Republican, so like you say, that might be par for the course for Republicans. Hey, did you mention that? Well, and also, why does a former state senator Republican from McHenry who opposed medical cannabis when it was first proposed, she, she polled her constituents and they responded like 80% in favor. And she said like, well... My police are against it. <laughs> right. And she did say my police. Yeah. Which is like, uh, okay. Like, why does she have any say in anything that's going on in the state with cannabis? She shouldn't be there. <laughs> yeah. Straight up. Straight like, up. That's why, like, I just feel like people need to talk about her. You know, you need to make, like, make her like a household name among cannabis users. <laughs> yeah, or I like what you've said in the past, the the what's known as um the ICIA or the Illinois Cannabis Industry Association, right? Or is it is that am I wrong on that? Wait, which what are you talking about? Hold on. They were they were the Mer they were the Medical Cannabis Alliance of Illinois. What are they now? Cannabis Business Association of Cannabis Illinois. Business Association, thank you. We should look at the Cannabis Business Association of Illinois, uh, just like Michigan looks at the MCMA. Yeah. Like mm -hmm. they're the enemy. <laughs> I think the problem is there isn't as much like education about it over here, you know, like over there, there's a, you know, they have that whole like caregiver population. Like that's a pretty sizable population to get excited to oppose someone like that. Yeah. Um, but yeah, she's like, she's, they had their Steve Linder and their MCMA and we have Pam Eltoff and the CBAI. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. But ours is worse. Ours is worse because they already control everything. Mm -hmm. You know, over there, they were fighting to stamp out the other avenues to get weed, you know, here it's like, they just they have already won so now it's about trying to like find a way to claw their ownership back somehow or make you like oh just open things up and i don't even mean that in like a licensing sense i mean that in like just the liberalization of cannabis policy yeah what did you say that she said earlier like uh with 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 respect to new businesses like We'll welcome you with open arms into our association. Well, no, it was like she like I've heard him say multiple times, like talk about him as like, you know, excited to welcome these people as new partners, like oh. partners. It's like, no, like you're the you're supposed to be the competition. Like they should have their own thing. You don't yes. control the world. <laughs> right. Did you mention floods, David Floods? relationship to cannabis or what was the medical cannabis association? Well, he started the Illinois relief fund, which became the cannabis business association. Yeah. Right. So there's so many but different he has things. ownership in at least one of these companies, but like, again, yes, this isn't public information, you know, which is the biggest issue. Yeah. 
I mean, that would be like one of the biggest reforms I would love to see is just that being made public. Again, or and like this- whatever the lawsuit the Tribune filed against the state. Like, I don't know what I couldn't really find anything about what happened to it, but they certainly sued for the information. Right. And like in my interview with Shaleen, you know, I think we were talking about it once where she pointed out that, you know, regulators very much do rely on the public for some of these things. So it's like, okay, why not make some of this data a little bit more public then so that the public can fucking see it <laughs> and like well, do things like we're talking they don't, about. I mean, you would assume they just don't want the public to see it, right? Yeah. I mean, especially yeah. because Steens and Cassidy said during the process that they specifically would address that. And they yes. didn't. Yes, and actually, I think that that was, yeah, that's, I think, on this next page here. So um, this this is interesting. Uh, more than 120000 So first of all, the $630,000 that we're talking about, in all, it was reported that money went to 60 lawmakers with the ability to vote on the measure, 45 of whom voted yes. So most of them. Um, more than 120,000 went to campaign and political funds reported uh, reportedly went to campaign and political funds tied to just one of those legislators, State Senator Don Harmon of Oak Park. Well, and since 2020, the Cannabis Business Association has given him 150,000. Nice, Don Harmon. Hey. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> cannabis is paying for Don Harmon. No, he was, uh, so when, um, I think it was when Bruce Rauner signed the, you remember I was telling you it was kind of his arm up against kind of behind his back. He signed the kind of expansion of the medical cannabis program on the con uh, consolation that, yeah, they dissolved the medical cannabis advisory board. Mm-hmm. Um, Don Harmon was at that speech uh, along with Kelly Cassidy and Heather Staines and uh, Don Harmon. I'm just, he was just wearing this really nice white suit. Looked like, <laughs> yeah, it was like, yeah, dude, that that's what I'd be wearing if I was bathing in that money too. But anyways, uh, the report detailed that uh, the companies also gave more than a hundred thousand dollars to a political action committee to advance their interests and a separate nonprofit backing their goals, the Medical Cannabis Alliance of Illinois, is linked to a for-profit firm that gave more than $110,000 in its own name to state lawmakers. So again, folks, the Medical Cannabis Alliance is the Illinois Cannabis Business Association of Illinois. Did I say that right that last Cannabis time? Business Association. Cannabis CBAI. Business. CBAI. Um, I don't know why all of a sudden tonight I'm forgetting this, uh, but... <laughs> um, Counted in the political giving is 123,000 that went to new Chicago mayor, Lori Lightfoot. Um, it's kind of interesting. The campaign contributions came as momentum is building here to legalize uh, cannabis, the measure signed into law. Um, so they're detailing how Governor J.B. Pritzker, whose second cousin, Joby Pritzker, is a member of the Marijuana Policy Project. And that organization was actually credited by sponsors of the Illinois legislation as having helped write the bill. And the group uh, was among those to contribute to the campaign fund of Representative Kelly Cassidy of Chicago, a co-sponsor who collected 13000 in contribution contributions tallied by the Tribune. And she also took in a couple thousand from Revolution before legalization. And then her wife took a job with Revolution 
like literally a month after the bill passed. <laughs> yes. like, before, like before it was actually even legal here. Yeah, in July, late July, Cassidy's spouse, yeah. Candace Gingrich, Gingrich, if that sounds familiar, it's because it's Newt Ging, somehow related to Newt Gingrich. Anyways, she was named the vice president for the Illinois-based cannabis company Revolution Enterprises. Um, I, What I thought was funny about that is that Cassidy told the Tribune that the House Ethics Office said that there's no conflict. So it's all good. Um, oh, my God. She ran it by them. But when know? I read that when I read that article and sent that to you earlier about how she originally got her seat through an appointment rather than an ele- election and how Staines, they were trying to do the same thing with Heather Staines seat. Staines won her election. And then like a month or two later, she was going to like retire and she was looking to hand it off to Kelly Cassidy. But then some people, people in the neighborhood started to kind of like raise a stink about it, I guess. Um, and she didn't end up getting it. And I think some of this came up, this like her getting a job, her wife getting a job with revolution came up in it, but it, it was uh, satisfying to see her not get a promotion. <laughs> Interesting. <laughs> Um, the Tribune's review found that Pharmacan, its executives, their relatives, and lobbyists can be linked to more than 82,000 in recent political contributions, including some 51,000 to Don Harmon and his organizations. In the past year, Pharmacan executive director Stephen Schuler made a $5,600 contribution, the maximum allowed for an individual, to friends of Don, Don Harmon. I like this next part. Uh, not... Uh, not this part, but the next part after that. Schuler Schuler contributed at the same level to the funds of Don Harmon for township committeemen and Don Harmon for state central committeemen. But this is what's funny. <laughs> Schuler's spouse also made a separate $5,600 comp- contribution, right? Because his spouse just loved Don Harmon too and had to <laughs> contribute her maximum. Um, Schuler is a director at Chicago's Wicklow Capital, which invests in technology and other sectors, including the cannabis industry. He contributed to Harmon as early as 2002, but not at the same level as uh, the past two years preceding legalization. He really kicked it up. Um, I don't know why. Wicklow leader and <laughs> pharmacan industry, uh, or sorry, pharmacan investor Dan Tierney also is among Harmon's contributors. Um, Tierney made two contributions of 5,600 to Harmon's main fund and last year gave $11,100 to the Democratic Party of Oak Park, which Harmon chairs. See, and this is what I'm saying about like what, what we just looked up like really superficially versus what someone who does this for a living knows what to do. Like even there, I think in that report or a different article about this contributions around cannabis issue, they talk about how like because the ownership information is con- the ownership and application information is confidential and you can't get it uh there's probably like a lot more contributions and money going to these people that you can't even track or will never know about absolutely you know absolutely yeah i'm trying to see um and also it is an all cash industry in illinois so there's also just straight up bribes <laughs> <laughs> yeah i'm trying yeah so that's the thing that was really interesting i think i actually have something about that soon 
But yeah, you know, if I don't, let's just make sure we put it on the record. You said it once or we said it twice now, actually. Um, yeah. So the bill, as it stood with the medical cannabis bill, and as we you know spoke about earlier with Lou Lang defending the secrecy to keep it pure, right? Um, ultimately, that <laughs> it just muddies the waters. And so when we were going into this, uh, what was it? Was it Heather Staines and Cassidy? They, they were both saying, or at least one of them, some of them, they were saying that, yeah, they were going to clear that up and they were actually going to make it public record. But ultimately they didn't do that. Yeah. They had like sworn to make it more transparent and then it just went completely unchanged. Yep. Yep. So, um, yeah, when asked about this, Don Harmon reportedly said that he's not kept track of industry contributions to him and that he remains uninfluenced by them. This is interesting. In addition to monetary contributions, Pharmacan lobbyist Dorgan, Butcher, and Phelps reportedly had logged thousands of dollars in its expenditure reports for meals where Harmon and other lawmakers were present. That included a $366 meal at Pro and Popper proper in Los Angeles for Harmon and four other legislators in July 2018, weeks after the bill expanding medical marijuana in the state was sent to then-Governor Bruce Rauner. Harmon said that the dinner took place when he was in California with other lawmakers for a national conference of state legislators, and in his view, it was unrelated to marijuana. At the time of that reporting, a California firm had a pending bid to purchase Pharmacan for $682 million. That's just how Bob McCoppin reported it. You know, he's very matter of fact. He's saying, so, you know, Harmon said that the dinner took place in California with lawmakers and was unrelated to marijuana. The next sentence, California firm has a pending bid to purchase Pharmacan. <laughs> so he's like, you know, it's just kind of like, here, here it is. Just the facts, but you know. You get his tone. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, the Chicago Tribune article noted that how legalization law came to provide an exclusive market to existing license holders is not entirely clear, but the end result seems to run counter to the conclusions of a study commissioned by its original sponsors. So I don't know if you remember this, but in February, uh, leading up to it, the lead sponsors of the bill, Cassidy and Heather Staines, announced a study that showed market demand in Illinois will quickly outstrip supply from states' existing licenses. The study was silent on whether or how many more licenses should be issued. The sponsors said they wanted new licenses to expand opportunity, but talked about licenses for craft growers rather than large-scale cultivators. The Illinois market for legalized cannabis, cannabis has vast potential, and that means that the future holds significant opportunities for new licenses, licenses and points of entry. I'm committed to ensuring that this market is competitive. The original study was rebutted a month later. Wait, who, and said, who said that? That was Staines. Okay. Because I was like, Cassidy also said back in the day, she didn't want, like, they were intending the market not to be competitive for four or five years. Mm. You remember that? Yeah. I always thought that was such a strange thing to say when you still criminalize possession of, like, like selling just over 10 grams is a felony, but it's not a priority to you to get the market competitive 
quick. Right. <laughs> I think this is what you were thinking of earlier. The original study was rebutted a month later in a competing market report sponsored by the lobbying group Medical Cannabis Business uh, Medical Cannabis Alliance of Illinois, which is the Illinois Cannabis Business Association of Illinois now. The new study released in March said the current group of Illinois cultivating companies could meet all demand for up to four years. Hey, there you go. There's your four years. Maybe mm-hmm. that's where that came from. Four to five years. Yep. Um, and they're close to having that, by the way, if you think about it. They wanted that and they've almost gotten it. Um, it does make you think, too, like their desire to control supply and like maybe not have like if you had had like a four ounce purchase limit, you know, for out of state people. Like they would have been so pressed and like never been like there would have been so many cries to like increase capacity, I feel like more in the beginning. Yeah. Like I feel like those possession limits were like probably them too, (laughs) at least partially, or they were like cool with it. Interesting. I never really thought about that, but you're saying that maybe they favored the possess the lower possession limits. Especially for out of state. Right. You know, it's just such a weird distinction that you literally don't see repeated elsewhere. I can't think of another state that does that. Yeah, true. Like when I go to Colorado, I can buy as much as an instater can, I'm pretty sure. Yeah, Michigan is the same. I mean, I just I feel like I like I would have seen that somewhere and it would have stuck out in my head as being like Illinois. Yeah. But maybe we're wrong. Yeah, maybe we're wrong, you know. Again, we're just but still it out 14 there. grams, like the possession limits for out of state are like very low. Yeah, I They're think it's 15 kind of like, grams. It makes me think like, what was the you would think if they like the companies, if they had like because they really do get what they want. It's like they want to sell as much as they can. So they would have increased those limits if they like really wanted to. Yeah. Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised to see it change next year. <laughs> <laughs> hope so hope so but um the uh yeah so we were talking about how the the study ran counter you know and heather Staines said that uh yeah she wants she's committed to ensuring the market is competitive so yeah that study came out oh yeah so cassidy and Staines, who both received industry tied contributions put forward a bill that gave the existing growers the advantage cassidy said she tends not to pay attention to campaign contributions just like don Harmon. and the bo- the bill lawmakers passed is probably the least industry centered bill that's a quote um oh. out it's probably the least industry centered bill out there she said um she acknowledged the different demand study findings and said the law addresses the need for new entrants. She said the industry pushed back on some provisions in the law, such as the cultivation square footage caps and requirements that growers make contributions aimed at increasing equities or equity in the industry. So what she's basically trying to say is that she had some pushback from the industry, you know. Um, but I think it's interesting that it just says flatly she acknowledged the different demand study findings. I wish I knew how she acknowledged the different demand study findings. Like, did she just say, I, I acknowledge them or like, I don't know. When I hear her talk, I just think she's full of shit. 
Well, uh, so this is interesting. One side effect of the, who's saying this? Uh, Oh, I think this is from the article. One side effect of the current marijuana company's grip on the market is it limits diversity in the industry here. Two outspoken legislators on that issue were Senator Toy Hutchinson and Representative, uh, sorry if I say this name wrong, Jahan Gordon Booth, um, both African-Americans. As the legalization bill was debated, they issued a statement that they were, quote, taking a strong stand against the medical industry's push to limit adult use licenses because it left too many minorities on the sidelines. Quote, we're not going to codify the inequity that's in medical marijuana now, Hutchinson said. It's not happening. Yet, as it ended up, the legislation for now preserves the status quo that keeps the industry predominantly owned by white males. That's Robert McCoppin for you. Well, and she voted for it, right? She did. Yeah, which is why she couldn't become the actual cannabis regulator. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yes, and that is something we're going to be getting to, to as that's, well because that's, that's it, like that's, to bring up Carol Amons again. It's like she had the like principles to not vote for it. Like she'll say it's because she wasn't allowed to speak, but I think it's because she knew it was a bad bill. It's like you know, Toy Hutchinson and Jahan Gordon. They say they clearly understood that the caps and the limits were going to benefit the existing operators, but then you just vote for it anyway. Right. And so that's what makes me think like, yeah, like, cause she wanted a promotion to be cannabis czar. And then from there you get to maybe go on and be the director at NPP. Mm-hmm. Well, so initially representative Gordon Booth um, said she was comfortable letting the current operators have the first uh, crack at the market. You know, she only knew of a few African-Americans invested in the industry, but ultimately the portions of the new law focused on equity and cannabis conviction expungements made her comfortable. It also helped that people of color were part of the conversation from the beginning, she said. Plus, current growers were positioned to get product to the market by January 1st. I had to realize it was a reality of how an industry ramps up. You get to a place where you're like, okay, is it all... Is it all or nothing, or can you compromise a little bit? Because the good tremendously outweighs the bad. That's the legislative process. And then here we here we go for you. Uh, And despite their earlier criticism, both Hutchinson, Gordon Booth, and Gordon Booth voted for the legalization measure. Hutchinson received five thousand dollars in campaign contributions from PTS in October. Gordon Booth received five hundred dollars from a lobbyist in twenty eighteen. well, she's also gotten money from Verano and Cresco in 2021 and 2022. Who, uh, Gordon Booth? Mm-hmm. 2022. Yeah. How much money? Well, that was that was kind of the interesting thing to look into was like a lot of the recent donations, you know. Yeah. Do you want? I mean, it's like a, it's a thousand dollars for her from Verano and from Cresco. Verano's 2021. Cresco's 2022. Um, you know, and I mean, someone like Kelly Cassidy, you know, she's been taking their money this whole time ever since they could make donations. <laughs> but like, yeah, she takes Pharmacan, you know, Ataraxia, Cureleaf, Verano, PTS. She took that revolution money right before legalization. Yeah. 
And I guess the question we're asking right now, when you see somebody taking in all this money and, and frankly, it's, it's, it's representative Cassidy, it's representative LaShawn Ford. We've seen take money from the cannabis business association of Illinois. Correct. Am I correct on that? And it, other well, companies he took, he, yeah, post 2020, he's taken money from the Cannabis Business Association, Verano, and then he's also taken it from GTI. But when they do their contributions, it's under this name Vision Management, which is referenced in like some Tribune article, but it's their same address. Yeah, um, I'm wondering. But he also like LaShawn Ford, you know, like he kind of came out after legalization when there were all these problems with the equity licensing. And he kind of became like a face for making changes to that. And the first thing that really made me question it was when I saw him at that Cresco. Yeah. At that Cresco opening. Like right there in the middle, cutting the ribbon. Why, what, what, why I mean, do you, why did that stand out to you? I mean, I get it that they like literally own the market, but I just like, I don't know. It's a little off-putting. Yeah, no, I get it. I just wanted to, I just wanted to ask. There's a, he's also, uh, you know, recently pictured um, with. Yeah, when, G, when GTI held an event for him. Yeah, I'll share that really quick. He's standing with Ben Kovler. And so the question I'm asking, and I think that we're asking, and that's why I just asked you, why does that make you uncomfortable? It's like when you see somebody like LaShawn Ford, who I had, you know, and I still have great respect for, like you, you, you would, okay, so he was supposed to be the face and fighting for these people and fighting for the cannabis community, right? Well, then why are you taking money from these people that, in my opinion, have done damage to the cannabis community and, and this, the system that we're currently experiencing. Well, and his, I think he's sponsored a lot of the legislation or the legislation that like people are fighting for right now in the veto session. But like, <laughs> yeah, it's like, I don't know, like you get the sense that like maybe he's talking out of both sides of his mouth. That's what I wonder. Like, yeah. But you also, that's the same thing that we talk about too, is like the market is so owned by these companies. It's like, I feel like even a lot of people who are like striving to get into the market here, like they seem like they're kind of reluctant to like really cause too much of a ruckus about the way things are. <laughs> oh yeah. Oh yeah. We've had people on the show that are like, ah, we don't want to, you know, we're yeah. not trying to. Yeah. I mean, it's just like, yeah. Like, and it's like, I'm not should, trying to fight either, but we're trying to talk about change. Should just question what's going on. Like, correct. and what is going on is like a legalized cartel where we still have the same fucking criminal penalties we had back in 2019 for the most part. Absolutely. Um, but, and also like, it's just hard to, yeah, like, you know, like the lack of attention on a lot of these things in like popular and like with the masses, <laughs> you know, it's just like it's hard to think that it would be a priority for legislators. And then when you hear that they just like meet with these lobbyists left and right and they barely take the time to meet the people who are actually going down to Springfield to like get to do like the real work, you know, it's just makes you, yeah, <laughs> feel well, not and great about Illinois. <laughs> 
And, you know, like we recently watched that discussion with Toy Hutchinson at, uh, what was it? Uh, where was DePaul. that? DePaul. And, um, you know, I t- tuned in late and I haven't been able to, I don't think they sent out a recording yet. So I haven't been able to watch back to it, but I, I tuned in in the middle of a conversation where they're like, where somebody had asked, you know, what can we do to energize our representatives almost like in a similar way to what you experienced toy. Like that's what I got the impression of the question was, but again, I tuned in in the middle of it and she like attempted to answer and gave, you know, good answers. I'm not saying the answers aren't accurate. Like you got to call your representatives, you got to hold them accountable. You got to let, you got to get those things into their head and, you know, maybe even show up at lobby days, you know, all those things that, are effective or whatever, but she's not, what she didn't mention is that like the money, the money is why this happened. Like, so like, I'm not saying that she has to be like, the only reason we pass this is money, but like, maybe she should, could suggest like, if you want to make change, you should pay us a little more money or pay somebody a little more money. <laughs> truly. Cause like, you know, oh, like again, with the fight with the MCMA over in Michigan where they were fighting caregivers, one of the things that they did over there was a bunch of the grow stores got together and formed a rival organization and hired their own lobbyist. You know, but it's like, what consumer, you know, who's going to do that for consumers? <laughs> That's the issue is that it's like these people have to almost do it for themselves. The people that are trying to get into the business and like it can't, it's not like as a consumer, well, if they that, could get into the business to actually make some real money, then they could hire lobbyists to advocate for their section of the business. But it's like you're so beholden to the cartel. That's a good point. That's a good point. That is a very good point. You can't even get in to start making the money to to start doing that. So, um, yeah, we, so we talked about this, but it was reported in late July that Cassidy's spouse, Candace Gingrich, was uh, named vice president. Cassidy told the Tribune that the House Ethics Office said there's no conflict. So, you know, nothing to worry about there. Also, among the leading recipients of contributions from the state's cannabis industry was State Representative Bob Morgan, who sponsored a bill that made medical cannabis the medical cannabis program permanent, which... I feel like, oh yeah, yeah, I've got that story later. It's just a small story, but um, he, the Tribune Review linked more than $25,000 in contributions to Morgan, who did not immediately return a call for comment. What do you got for Morgan since then? I mean, since this reporting. I mean, yeah, it's he takes money from Cresco, Verano, Pharmacan. Uh, I'm sure he's on... Yeah, he takes money from Cannabis Business Association. But then there's also like, isn't he even currently like working for a law firm that does cannabis consulting? Binesh. Yeah. But is that what it is? Binesh? Or is it something? But doesn't else? he like currently work there? I think so. Did didn't I mean, that was you, didn't my, you send me the... up, I sent you that thing from their website. Yeah, let me see if I can pull which that have, up. Which has been referenced in like news reports. In what context? Like what, what are they talking about? 
Well, just, you know, being like, this is a guy that works on legislation and did these roles. And this is also like what he's profiled as doing on their website, which is like, you know, representing Cresco or representing Green Thumb. Gotcha. Um, trying to find this here. We sent a lot of messages back and forth. What am I, what am I even looking for again? What was it? Uh, the, the thing off of his, uh, um, website, right. That said what, like, Oh yeah. The bottom of it is like highlighted in blue. Yeah. Mm. Oh, there it is. I think. Yeah. So let me share this really quick. I love that we can do this podcast long form and just really break this down. Um, oh, it looks like this thing is in the way. Tell me, is it out of the way? Yeah, there you go. You're good. Okay. Um, so you want to read this off? Uh, well, this is just like his work history with them, really. It's, he represented Pharmacan, one of the country's largest vertically integrated cannabis companies, as lead counsel on a $25 million senior secured convertible loan facility secured by Illinois Medical and Adult Use Dispensary Assets. <laughs> Whatever that means. <laughs> it's, it's interesting to see that he's in Michigan. Yeah, he did another company. He did a company in Michigan, but then he also represented Cresco, one of the largest vertically integrated multi-state cannabis operators in the U.S. In initiatives including merit-based applications in various states, including Missouri, and advised the company on state and federal laws and pending legislation. And then represented GTI in matters including a cultivation license from the Ohio Department of Commerce following an appeal. Yeah. Yeah. So just so that he has ties, like he's represented and worked with three of the big companies that like now he's making legislation around, you know? Yeah. And speaking of GTI Ohio, um, or in, in Ohio, GTI Ohio was one of among the top contributors to an effort which ultimately failed because um, voters were outraged that all the money would uh, to be made was going to be limited to so few. Uh, they said it was going to be a contr controlled by. Oh, that was like the mon yeah, that was like the monopoly bill like a couple years ago, wasn't it? Yes. And so uh, GTI, what's interesting, since things are a little bit easier and more transparent to see in Ohio, they were able to see that GTI donated more than $600,000 alone. That's from GTI uh, to push that plan. Um, they would go on to win some licenses to operate in the state. Of course, if you're spending that much money, um, you're going to get what you want. So GTI says they believe in the democratic process, including the transparency of political contributions, which is why they donate under the name vision management. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. Which is probably uh, not the only name that's not GTI that they do that under. Yeah. Oh, okay, so this is maybe what you were referring to earlier. It's not unusual. So the, this, this Tribune article says it's not unusual for states to let medical marijuana cultivators to start growing for the recreational market first. Stain and Cassidy's 
Staines and Cassidy's uh, study of demand said successful programs have been opened by incorporating as many of the stakeholders from the, this is what's interesting. Um, they said their demand study said successful programs have been opened by incorporating as many of the stakeholders from the legacy programs as possible. Um, I think by legacy programs, they mean the one already mentioned. So maybe that's not as profound as I meant it to, meant it to not, be. I don't think they meant legacy market. <laughs> yeah, darn it. Now that I read that, I'm like, shit. Okay. Um, so yeah, they were saying from legacy programs, uh, while not sacrificing the broader goals of legalization. So Illinois cultivators argued that putting limits on those who can grow recreational marijuana will help avoid problems that have occurred in other states. Oregon, for example, initially did not cap the number of licenses it gave out for growers and had an excess of cannabis. Which, I mean, we had the regulator on from Oregon and he didn't seem like that was such a big issue. I mean, other than, you know, just diversion, but that's like, well, the that other is only think, because the other states are illegal. That's the only reason diversion happens. Well, the, the other thing I think too is like people like caps uh, or this idea of like slow rolling out things because they don't, people like people who want to get into the industry might even favor those policies if they can manage to get a license because like, really you know like we've talked about this before like the cannabis like a dispensary i mean it's probably going to be about as viable as like a restaurant in some ways you know like a lot of them would go under you know and even if like over half of them fail like that's not necessarily a reason to restrict people's access to start one you know because most restaurants fail like it's something like over 70% of them fail after like five years and more than half of them in like the first one or two. Right. And I know you, you know, are so like, it's not the government's job to make sure your business is, I mean, in some ways it's gotta be viable, but it's not their job to like prop you up to keep you sustained. It's by, especially not by limiting other people's access to start their own operations to compete with you. Yes. Yeah. And it's like, that's the, that's the question. And, and, uh, Tom Howard, I think you told me this, Tom Howard, maybe, maybe somebody else told me this, but I got to give credit where credit is due that Tom Howard is the one that said this. Um, he said, you know, we're basically, I'm pretty sure it was you. We're basically setting our companies up for failure when, and if federal legalization does happen in interstate trade is a thing. Like if you don't let these can cannabis companies compete, like and and actually compete with some real competition when it comes to competing with other state markets that are more established these people might fucking flop well and the other thing too is like illinois wasn't known as being some like mecca for cannabis growers right you know so like we should have done what like oklahoma did really you know, made it a big billboard like, hey, if you love to grow weed, move here and start a business. Yes. Because now, I mean, like, you just always hear from people that grow. It's like, oh, if you want to do that kind of thing, you move. I mean, maybe not at this point because they're like doing their own moratoriums and stuff. But yeah, it's like Illinois didn't have the like domestic cultivation talent and culture. Like they should have like really tried to attract that more. Absolutely. So yeah, I just want to hammer home again, the uh, Medical Cannabis Alliance of Illinois, uh, now known as the Illinois Cannabis Business Association of Illinois. 
Um, they have questionable ties. You know, MCAI's principal officer was listed as David Flood with an address of Barnhart Street, which is the same address given as, uh, you know, PTS. And then you said, what, there's a question about whether or not he's also on Verano, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, they've given money, in, you know, to Michael Madigan's campaign, um, which it explains why, you know, they got what they needed done. Um, Rauchy and Sullivan, what'd you have to say about them? Like, cause they were the ones that gave money to Michael Madigan. Well, that's just campaign. like kind of a, along the lines of Pam Altoff and her close, like seemingly ties to law enforcement or closeness to them. Like they're a, a law firm, I guess, in Chicago, but they seem to represent like the fraternal order of police. And like, I guess she uses them for counsel or to like draft thing, you know, I don't know, but she's paying them legal fees like here and there. Gotcha. Her police, right? Yeah. Her police. <laughs> <laughs> My armed guards that'll take you out if you're running a legacy operation. I know she's not saying that really, but long haul, that's what it is. Oh, you know, the other one I loved to look at was um, I was just looking at because I saw Altria's name. Yeah. Like just that they make donations in Illinois and they donate a lot to the Democrats. Um, I just think it's interesting because when you look through Altria, like, I mean, they donate to a lot of people, but you see like a lot of the same names as people who these big cannabis companies are donating to, like this guy, Bill Cunningham. Uh, Bob Rita was like one. Like there's just some random names I just was like seeing between the two, like Jahan Gordon took some money from them at some point. Yeah. In 2022, she took 2,500 from them. They have some Pam think, Altoff donations back from 2015 to 2017. Would this be in any of the documents you sent me so I can put it on the screen? I don't think I looked them up to send to you. Okay. But okay. they like, I mean, they're like big money and they've been around a long time. So they have like a ton of, I think there was like 500, different contributions they'd made or something. Yeah. And so let's, uh, I'm going to show people how to do this. We've been putting this off for a second. Let's just show people how we look this, this money up and then we'll continue our conversation. Are you good on time for a little bit longer? I know it's a little late. Um, yeah, I got a little longer. Cool. Uh, cause we're, I'm on actually the last, we're basically on the last page here. Uh, just a little bit more of this money stuff. And maybe if, if that sparks any other money thoughts, then I think we're at a good place where we can wrap up actually. Um, but yeah, let's show the people. Uh, I just had a fucking window open. It's just the, the uh, Illinois board of elections. Yep. I got it. I got it pulled up. I was just trying to find, uh, I'm, I'm high as fuck trying to share the, <laughs> the, uh, thing. So now this thing is in the way. So I'm going to move it down here so you can see this now, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so folks are going to want to go to campaign disclosures and they're, then they're going to want to go to a contribution search for most of this stuff, right? Mm-hmm. And let's just do ICANN, for example. You can see I've been doing some searches. Um, it's going to do a search. Yeah, and ICANN is the Cannabis Business Association. Yes, thank you for, for saying that. You can see just off the bat, big money we're talking here. Um, what I like to do, folks, it makes it easier. Um, 
you can download the list as an Excel document and you can kind of format it differently. Uh, but you can see uh, Bob Rita, Zalaweski, Chris Emmanuel Welch. I think that's what they go by. I think he's um, the speaker of the house now. He has Mike Madigan's old job. Oh, nice. So yeah, I sort well, that's of why they That's why they send him the big money. There you he's go, like the sec- he's the second most other than uh, Don Harmon. Oh, yes. There's Don Harmon. A hundred thousand dollars for my can. God damn. It's good money. Well, Sean Ford, two thousand dollars. This is on. What are these columns? Amount received. So that's that's the date that it was received. Then I guess this is the date it's reported. Um, sometimes it's reported a little late, you know. It happens. Give me a hundred thousand dollars. Oh, what I forgot to report it. Um, I don't know why I'm doing a New York accent. Don't ask me. This is Illinois. Fifty thousand dollars in 2020 to Don Harmon. Yeah, that was why I was saying he got like 150 from them. <laughs> I mean, that's like yeah. a lot of it. Yeah. So I mean, yeah, well, folks, he's, I mean, he's like the leader of the, you know, Illinois Senate. So him and the other guy getting most of the money makes sense because they kind of control what passes and what doesn't, or even what gets called to the floor. I would think if it, if it's how it works in the national level. Yeah. So if, folks, you can see Cresco labs here. Uh, they just made this year a contribution to Bob Morgan. I think, uh, have you noticed, maybe I'm just high. Have you noticed it seems like a lot of companies donate 24,000 to ICANN? Is that maybe their uh, fees? I think it's the limit. Oh, it's the limit. A lot gotcha. of the times these totals <laughs> will be like, will be like the limit you can give in one year. The ones I liked were like, at some one of these companies had such weird totals. Oh, I don't know who it was now. It was one of these like smaller cannabis companies, but they would give like $1,462.50. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's weird. 52 cents. Seems like maybe was, they were, there was one that had like 50 cents on it. And I was like, what did they do? Just say like, whatever the sales are for the next four hours, we're sending that to the cannabis business association. <laughs> Yeah, that or like, did they go out to dinner and it was like, you know, I don't know, 50 cents. That just seems a weird, like a weird thing to be left over. Trying to see if there's anything else. You know, people gave big money to Mayor Lori Lightfoot. We were talking about that earlier. And the reason is because um, the Chicago mayors, well, some mayors just have, you know, a lot of power when it comes to um what you can do in town so like you know uh if you want to set up a consumption lounge or if the person that has the say on whether or not you can smoke on your front porch also there was a there was a like when people had suspicions that the social equity wasn't going to work out that well uh before legal sales started i think it's jason irvin I think I'm getting his name right, but he's like 
I don't know if he's a leader in the Black Caucus in the city council or he's just part of it, but he got like a decent number of people together to oppose starting rec sales in Chicago, like until there was a, I think until there was a social equity dispensary open. Because that they they did a same they did a similar thing in Detroit. They said we're not having rec sales until we get our social equity stuff like sorted out and one of you know at least one of those shops open. I think, but the Lori Lightfoot opposed that and kind of squashed it, and it you know didn't really go anywhere. Yeah. So uh, what I was looking for earlier is the mayor can wield significant power over whether and where cannabis can be sold in the city which is what you're talking about right there. Mm-hmm. Um, the new Illinois law allows also allows municipalities to ban cannabis businesses outright within their boundaries. Something you mentioned earlier, the city's process for approving medical cannabis businesses was so involved that many dispensaries there were w- among the last open in the state, right? That's how involved city officials were. Um, in all contributions linked to Lightfoot totaled $123,000. I was like, her favors are cheap. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Damn. I could buy a fucking favor. I was going to say, um, and it's interesting. It says, and included some large contributions. So I don't know if that means in addition to something else. Um, but yeah, Pharmacan's a big, big spender. Um, trying to think of people we haven't mentioned yet. That so that list we showed earlier is basically you know people asked on the subreddit the other day who do who do we avoid? Unfortunately, the answer is most companies. <laughs> yeah, most um, companies. But, but would <laughs> I mean would I you, think Bed, Bedford Grow is probably. I mean, and even like a company like Arise isn't technically on there, you know, but I know they've done their own lobbying out in Arizona against social equity provisions and, yeah, you know, I mean, you can't expect them not to do anything, but I just think in Illinois, it's like so fucked up. Like if you can not take part in the regulated market, don't take part in it. <laughs> if it's an option. And if you want to support you know, a new social equity dispensary that, you know, isn't owned by a former cop, like go there and buy some apparel or like anything else that isn't a product from one of the MSOs that lobbied to give you no other choices, but to buy their products. Yeah. What's the word on the new dispensaries? What have you heard about that? Is there, I mean, I know the one like from that article just has, you know, they were one of the uh, social equity people who like hired a cadre of people from, disproportionate areas instead of being them themselves. So they're just kind of like more like, it's like a restaurant tour, a former cop, I think an executive from like the CTA. Yeah. yeah like that six, that 16,000 there from vision management, that's GTI. See, and who are some of these other like, tr- I mean, Okay, I've heard of Trinity. Trinity I guess. is like a dispensary, I guess, right? Bridge City Collective. I don't really know what that is. It seems to be dispensaries out in Portland, but also someone who was just named to like the CBAI board is with them, I guess. So I don't know. They must own something in Illinois. Huh. Um, Harborside, KPG, Harrisburg, Ascend, Burners, Scober. What's that? I don't know. I only Googled some of these like Prospiant, I think is like a greenhouse. 
but they're all definitely cannabis related. Like I, yeah, they they're either they're ancillary or they're at cannabis companies. Gotcha. I just wanted to display this list again because again, people ask like, who should we avoid? Well, here's a good start. You know, yeah, there's a start. <laughs> and Cresco is not on this list. Someone was surprised when I mentioned ESO, and it's like, no, they're on there. I mean, they're yeah. not the biggest. They're not the biggest of the spenders, but they're on there. Well, as we mentioned earlier, though, their original, I don't know if they're still there, but they were the former Illinois Department of Agriculture director. So there seemed to be a pretty, I, I like, I don't know. To me, that's oh, conflict yeah, yeah. of interest is right. Am I, can I ask that question? Well, conflict <laughs> of interest abound in this industry in Illinois, apparently. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, I will be publishing this document um, with with all the sources uh, so that you can read about this. It was a lot of work to do and a lot of fun to do. We showed you how to um, look up this information uh, yourselves. And the trick is, like you say, uh, figuring out who to look up and what to look up, you know, and I don't know. Like it's hard. The thing that's tough, would you agree to me is with me on this? It's like, you know, somebody like Don Harmon who gets so much money from so many different people. It's hard to like, like, okay. It's like, okay, well that's maybe some hospital. So I guess that makes sense. Cause maybe he's doing some with healthcare, but then there's just like some no names and it's like, well, what is this? You know, and how do well, I figure it's that like, out? Like lobbying and all that money going around. That's just like part of our politics. I think more so to me, the thing about like, these companies like just hearing that they have such preferential treatment with senators, like with their lobbyists getting in to see them. It's like, this is why. <laughs> yeah. And then like if they point. want, if they want to have a phone call or a meeting with Don Harmon, it's like when like Donald Trump lies most of the time, but sometimes he just happened to tell the truth. Like when he would talk about giving money to both sides and he was like, yeah, if I need a favor, I want access to both people. Like that's why people give money is for access. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, well, and another point you've made before we go is like the money that this is all cash. What's the money we, that's not being reported. And it's very, oh, right, like, right. Not to be no, cheesy, there are, like, there are like, definitely, there are definitely bribes being paid. <laughs> yeah. And not to be cheesy, but like Ozark, like this is literally like, I, I actually thought and was wondering, I, I think they've ended it at this point, but I wondered if they were going to spin it, um, in the direction of like, like, Oh, Illinois. Cause you, do you know the story of Ozark? I'm not going to spoil yeah, roughly. it at all. It's roughly, breaking okay. bad, but in the Ozarks, but in the Ozarks. Right. But so part of it, and this isn't a spoiler for anybody, but part of it is they like look for businesses that are cash only because it's about how to launder money. Right. And so yeah. I thought that like maybe because they like mentioned Chicago, they even did like a, like a plug for some local um, hot dog place in Chicago. And I remember it was like in the Chicago subreddit, people were freaking out that it was mentioned in Ozark because it was like an homage to Chicago Anyways, though, I thought like maybe some way they they because they blended the casinos in. Uh, I I mean you know casinos, you you blend in different cash businesses, and I was just wondering, are they going to blend in oh. the dispensaries? Right? Um, yeah, absolutely. I didn't go that yeah, way. Yeah, in all cash industry in Illinois, someone has definitely been paid a bribe at some point in the last couple of years. Yeah. 
So, yeah, I mean, just to, for folks, I, I'm not sh- exactly, I think I'm going to just have it in some sort of link in the podcast description. Maybe I'll just edit this part uh, to what it'll actually be. But what I'm trying to figure out right now is how I can turn my goddamn background off because I'm wanting to show people that we've got like literally line for line. There are citations for, for everything uh, that we went through. And again, there's, there's a good chance that I missed some things. So like if you were there on the ground, um, if you know something, yeah, get in touch, hit me. Yeah. Hit (laughs) us up. And, or if you know, like other companies we should look into, or frankly, you know, if we showed you something new and you look into something and find something cool, and want to share it with them, but with the friends here at chill, the chill well, podcast, there's even more to all this, you know, like there's so many more articles and details that just further fill out the just shadiness of the whole timeline, you know? Yeah. Like the KPMG thing. I mean, just um, or with Marianne Lancar and her allegations against Lou Lang and about the actual $170 million bribe thing, you know, like we don't need to go into it now. We can do another whole thing, but like there, yeah, like there's another whole, there's a whole other things you could fill this in with. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And that's, I wanted to ask, I need to ask. Or like we have the, or the license lotteries. I mean, there's so much, you know? Yeah, I wish I had that meme uh, that you sent handy of the the lottery pictures, you know, because it was just perfect. Um, you sent For the their, their effort at transparency. Right, right. The pictures. <laughs> I'm trying to see. You sent that to me relatively uh, recently, I swear. Um, but yeah, this has been a lot of Here, fun. I just and sent like, it to you. I just sent it to you again. Oh, perfect. Um so yeah, I'll I'll share this uh for folks. The license lottery that didn't happen. Yeah, explain this meme for folks. Uh is the thing, can you see it? Is it cutting off the top? Yeah, it is cutting off the top. Some well, it's actually it's, it's it's from a conversation you had with Mike Malcolm on this podcast. I remember listening to it and you were talking about the new lotteries and how they weren't showing them or showing anyone like drawing the balls or anything. And then he brought up that they did that for the original license lottery. It was the lottery for uh, existing operators got to have a second location, but depending on where it was, was where you like drew your region out in this thing. So it's just funny to me that the bottom image was the state of Illinois provided this image for what the license lottery was going to be. Cause the like lotto was handling it or whatever. So it's like, Oh, okay. So that's transparency is you just showing us like Ed and Bob here playing like, a <laughs> video game console. <laughs> yeah. I just think it's so funny. <laughs> yeah. Well, like, it's, did- like they literally, like they don't even try sometimes to seem legit. <laughs> yeah. So when I move this down, can you see the top now? I wanted to make yeah, sure you that can people- see it. You can see okay, it now. Good. Good deal. I wanted to make sure people could see that earlier. So yeah, that is just hilarious. Your take on that is just so funny. Like, yeah, I'm just supposed to look at that image there and be like, yeah, yeah. I mean, what do I have? Oh yeah, totally transparent. Yep. Uh huh. Just get out of here. I know that all my uh, finances are riding on this, but they posted this picture of these two white dudes standing next to a computer. I feel fine now. Well, and it's just funny too, because it's like every you know, it was $2,500 non-refundable for every chance you put in there. So it's like, geez, you couldn't even like, 
<laughs> give people a video of you pulling balls out of a thing. Yeah. And, and again, these are all things we, we haven't got into that we'll have to get into in the future because like uh, you just brought up something that like, I think is very important to keep in mind like this, the way that this lottery worked was that there was that, you know, you could submit as many applications as you wanted. And so therefore mm -hmm. the more, but there was that application fee so if you submitted more, frankly, the odds were more in your favor. And I'm just saying, like, you know, people people were very open and honest about the fact that, of course, you know, I get it, too. I would do it, too. I'm not saying that it's like shame on people for doing that. But I'm, well, I, I think, am I mean, saying one, that people are open about had like, I mean, one company had like 20 percent of the applications <laughs> or like one entity or group or whatever. Yeah, that's just insane that that's even that that was even allowed. And some of the other things that were allowed, like how you could qualify the way the way that you qualified, like some of it, I got it. If you were if you had a cannabis offense, you know. Um, oh, yeah. Yeah. But the like hiring people, I mean, that was clearly just a get in for wealthy people. Yeah, because all you had to do was list them on your application. You didn't even have to even like like hire them it's like but we haven't even opened doors yet so what do you mean well, that's hire kind them? of insane yeah think about that just, <laughs> you just gotta scout out some people <laughs> right to list them on and people people have been honest in interviews that that's like how some of these companies were formed and it's like again no sweat about it like i'm not i'm not judging anybody I, in fact kudos to them for reading the rules and realizing like this is all we have to do okay frank george well, and Lucy, you can say like, you what? can say you can say don't hate the player, hate the game, but I'm also going to hate the player because a lot of those players created the game. <laughs> Fair. And and I guess here's maybe a good place to wrap it up. I want to hear your take on this. I am troubled by the fact that some of these people that have gotten licenses, and I'm not going to name any names. I don't think it's needed. Um, you know, you know who you are, but like, I just wish people would a little, like take a little bit more of a open stance. And I, I want to step back from this statement again to acknowledge something you said earlier to, to make it in the Illinois cannabis industry. You kind of have to buddy up with these people, you know, but it seems like no, I guess my point that I'm trying to make, and I'm again, I'm not actually even making it about anybody uh, specifically, but there are definitely some people that, that come to mind, you know, for sure. It's like that choose not to be loud, you know, let's not fuck this up for ourselves. And I get it. Well, and I get I it. I would be the same way. Too, I would say too, that I always thought that some of the strategy in giving out licenses was to like, uh, give some to people who were like, would have been very loud if they weren't part of the process. <laughs> yes you know so absolutely and other absolutely. people who other people who might have been loud might have not gotten a license because they might have been trouble yeah so well dude i don't know the is... whole thing just seems very non-transparent and shady so i don't know yeah and I, I just to kind of put a bow on all this something you said before we went on air that i thought was just beautiful like we're really just posing questions you know, I know I may have been snarky about the way I read things, but frankly, like, how can you not be when you read these things? Like, it's just so obviously yeah. like.
So forgive me for, you know, having a little bit of attitude, but I'm not saying that these are foregone conclusions. I'm just saying this is like public information that we just assorted. And it just, well, like, and we don't really hear like we read the Robert McCoppin articles or the Tom Shuba articles, but we don't like hear a lot of people talk about this. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and I know that's cause like a lot of the, I think a lot of the cannabis activism in Illinois and rightfully so is around diversifying the industry. Uh, but I think like the way the industry is, it's like to get your foot in the door, you almost have to like partner up with these people at this point. Yeah. And look, yeah, that's, it's, that seems to be what it is, you know? Yeah. Well, that's what I was saying last time about not like litmus testing new operators. It's like, what are they supposed to do? Right. Like the state has put them in like the worst position possible because they didn't live up to the intent of, they didn't live up to the, original intent that they had set out <laughs> exactly they're they really are stuck between a rock and a hard place <laughs> well and so yeah. that i mean that is why like yeah like i support the people who are in springfield like fighting for changes yep. to the business side of the law right now but like i just wish sometimes that we would talk about like the people that are going to jail for like pretty fucking minor offenses that now in missouri would be legal at least some of them yeah that and the reason I think it's so important to talk about that is because you know we acknowledge that this war on drugs was such a problem and that it causes like intergenerational problems and so let's solve it by giving these people an opportunity to build inter intergenerational wealth. But it's like, but if we don't stop the policies that would that you know cause the cycle that we were talking about, like what the fuck else are we doing? Well, you know what it is. It's I always think about it in relation to like someone who's an alcoholic who might be like abusive, like physically or emotionally. It's like you don't get to like make amends and then keep drinking and hurting people. <laughs> you gotta stop drinking and hurting people. Then you can like start making better choices and do move on with your life. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, well, Illinois last... still out there. Illinois still out there getting drunk, hurting people. <laughs> it really is. It was one last point I wanted to share that I think you might have thoughts on. Uh, Evan Bruno kind of got me on this one. It's the first few sections of the CRTA it says, in the interest of allowing law enforcement to focus on violent and property crimes, right? We want to generate revenue for education, substance abuse prevention and treatment. We want to free public resources to invest in communities and other public blah, blah, blah. Um, in the interest of allowing law enforcement to focus on violent and property crimes. That's why we did it. And that's why the generalist general assembly finds and declares the use of cannabis should be legal and should be taxed in a manner similar to alcohol. Also, it's interesting that they declare that it should be regulated in a, in a manner similar to alcohol. It, I, I argue it's not regulated I mean, at all like alcohol. It's also taxed a lot more than alcohol. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I don't know. It's just. Yeah, I, I do. I do love that opening statement because they didn't live up to that. Definitely. Not at all. So anyways, well, man, uh, it's been a pleasure talking to you. Yeah. I knew that this would be great. Um, is there anything else that you wanted to mention, I guess, before we wrap up uh, that you feel we did basis? I mean, I know that there's plenty of bases we didn't cover, but just, I guess, within the realm of the conversation today. Oh, no, I think we're good. I think we cool. definitely covered a lot. Cool, man. Well, thanks for doing this. Looking forward to the next time. Maybe we'll rope Marianne, Lon Carr and others so that they can fill in the blanks.
That would right? be a lot of fun. Yeah. I would be interested to do that. Yeah. Be cool. All right. Well, Chillinois, I hope you found value in this episode. I sure did. I learned a lot doing this and I'm looking forward to learning more and giving you all this information so that you can build on it. So look in the show notes. And like I say, uh, this will be here and take it and run with it. Uh, it's charity work for all of you. Have a good one, Chillinois.